Thomas ready is Will ready? Um, how do you feel about profanity in this podcast? I don't give a fuck. Just enough. I won't go out of my way for it, but every once in a while, there's no other word for the task. There's some salacious sentence enhancers. Yes. Salacious sentence enhancers. <laughs> that sounds like something you'd see an infomercial for on late night television, bro. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? That is not <laughs> FDA approved. It has not been tested. Halloween is not over yet, Murph. We uh, we now have this haunted house full of ghosts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's that? We have guests at the door. Uh, it's Will and Thomas. How's it going, guys? What up, bro? What up, Murph? Hello, Will. From, from the Link's Awakening episode, what are you doing here? Uh, I, I was told that there would be some frames and there would be fatal. So mm-hmm. I showed up, you know. Also, it's Halloween. You're entitled to a good scare, right? Ah! Okay. <laughs> also, I, I was just told there were going to be snacks, but I've just heard there are only enough for one of us. So, um, Will, you're going to have to go. Feel about stale pretzels. Oh, if it's pretzels, know. Thomas can have them. Thomas can have them. No, I, I, I think I've been misrepresented on the snacks. I think you can just uh, hold on to those. I was, I was more of a candy corn guy. I love candy corn. Bro, you <laughs> eat candy corn? You were like the I, only. You are the person who is keeping candy corn alive. You are like, <laughs> bro is like dropping candy hot takes. He's like, I love candy corn. I love black licorice flavored gum. It's yep, like, yep, I do. Honestly, no. at the candy corn factory, they have a picture of me on their desk, lovingly. Yeah. I, I like candy corn too. I think you're outnumbered three to one on the candy corn issue. I have never run into anybody who's actually eaten a circus peanut. Oh, that's yeah. no. I don't even know what that is. Is it like? A, is it just a peanut from an actual circus? <laughs> Isn't like, that the stuff you use to pack boxes? <laughs> it's those are packing go- peanuts. Circus peanuts are the ghosts of marshmallows that were betrayed by those they most trusted. Damn, that's rough. Even marshmallows aren't safe. Imagine if you had like a Lucky Charms marshmallow and you hooked a bike pump into it. And you gave it, like, three to four good pumps. I need you to stop saying the word pumps, right? <laughs> that's the texture of a circus peanut. <laughs> oh, that's fair. All right, okay. Will, welcome back, as always. Thomas, tell us about yourself. Okay. <clears throat> well, I've been in the video game journalism for industry for too long. My day job is I write for Dequire here in Seattle, covering the Washington State and Points Beyond video game industry. I've also contributed recently to Hard Drive, IGN, The Escapist, and Bloody Disgusting. Yeah, well, I, I like Bloody Disgusting. M- more important than any of that, what kind of games do you like? Um, happily, which I was given to understand the reason I was asked to come over here, is that I am a survival horror guy for the last couple of decades. Uh, boomer shooters, the occasional RPG... Uh, got really into Vampire Survivors for a while, but I think that kind of burned me out on Bullet Heaven for a while. Yep, yep. Is that the all, term all, now? All too familiar. It's the term if you're talking to me. I think it has Bullet more Heaven. Gra- I think it has more gravitas than 
people who insist on calling it something like a top-down shmup roguelike or whatever the hell mutant oh phrase is. Bullet? I like that. That's like when I heard someone, instead of saying Souls-like, they said stamina action game. <laughs> That's also something that is not FDA-approved. <laughs> Is definitely on late night television. <laughs> now, if you go to your local truck stop, you'll find a number of products which will improve your stamina action game. <laughs> Speaking I of stamina, now poor for this knowledge. You know who has a lot of stamina? <laughs> go ahead, do the segue. Do it, Spider Man. <laughs> Thomas, you played Spider Man too. How did you feel about it? I almost feel like you should wait to talk to me about this until the end of this segment, because I have a lot of thoughts about it. But most of them are coming from the space that I'm a big fan of the character and have been my entire life. And as a game, it's more more or less more of the same. It's uh, Peter and Miles bombing around New York, doing stuff. The actions as crisp as it usually is. I think it got a little bit rushed towards the end of the project because I don't feel like it's all the way baked through yet. I've run into a few bugs and weird situations that were not in the incredibly polished original version. Yeah. I'm definitely seeing clips on Twitter of some weird bugs, like Spider-Man becoming a cube or Miles' neck disappearing. I've had I've had Miles ha- have some weird animations and get stuck on things. Like, I have had my own glitches, which is not yeah it's like the original insomniac release was actually pretty polished um how you beat this game right thomas well i wasn't playing it for work so i haven't beaten it yet i am i haven't beaten it either so don't feel bad yeah i i just got to well for the benefit of anyone who hasn't beaten it i'll refrain from saying where i am because i think it would be a spoiler but sure um my primary thought about it is that with everything that they're doing in the game with the storyline I feel like we can just go ahead and retire normal comic book Spider-Man and just follow Insomniac's version from now on. Mm, Yeah. Because one of the interesting things about playing the game for me as a fan of the character is that the comic book version of Spider-Man has been more consistently fucked over by his editors and publisher than maybe anybody in the core Marvel cadre of heroes whose name isn't Hank Pym. Yeah, he's right. And the thing about the Insomniac version is he's older, he's allowed to make adult decisions, his life is relatively stable, but he does have problems. And uh, more to the point, I think the game is doing it, and I don't know if this was deliberate, but I think the game is doing a really interesting job of asking what it means to be a superhero. What does a superhero look like in 2023? Because the game goes out of its way to have P- peter kind of quietly disavow how close he used to be to the nypd in the first game uh, one being no- a big propaganda piece yes continue well and i think part of the whole deal with the superhero is in order for the superhero to effectively function you have to kind of take it as read that the established systems of social order don't exist the superhero is going outside of the system to do a thing the Frank Miller Batman, we are always criminals, Clark. Uh... Sort of, yeah. Um, but I think one of the interesting things that was introduced in Miles Morales, which is carried forward into this, is that a lot of what the Spider-Men do in their day-to-day is through the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man app. They're working directly for the people on whatever those people might, like they're, whatever those people might need. There's one where 
you're helping a young woman chase down her grandfather who just wandered off. He's somewhere in the park and she doesn't know where. Uh, there's another one where you're just helping some kid with a senior project. Mm-hmm. And the idea of a superhero who is, instead of doing like wall-to-wall punch-ups in this hell city that looks like 1980s New York but visibly isn't, yeah, uh, you're working directly for the people on positive projects, which often don't even involve punching anybody. That's one of the most beautiful things about Spider-Man is the friendly neighborhood aspect. And like the phone app stuff was existent in the Miles Morales uh, game. But I do feel like this one has really realized the potential of that in terms of the side quest and having the side quests uh, sort of stack on top of each other and pay off in a narrative sense. So that is really cool. I agree. Yeah, it's it's I've been thinking as I play through it, just how much of this I would prefer to see than whatever dipshit drama festival is going on in the comics right now. And I, I have not paid attention in a long time. Honestly, that's the other thing is, is like in terms of adaptations, adaptations usually have a nice free reign to reinterpret and also be unafraid of editorial. Like the fact that Peter Parker can start this game as a high school teacher and then have a relationship with MJ instead of a constant reset button, because you know, Marvel is afraid to, do things brave with the character says a lot. Um, I also liked uh, Spider-Man life story for that. Just whenever there's an opportunity for people to tell uh, stories un untied or untethered to editorial, it always works for the best. I, I have but one question. What's that? Is Paul in the game? I have yet to encounter Paul. <laughs> okay. I'm assuming, I mean, I would assume he'd be a boss fight. All right, all right. Uh, and and uh, Miss Marvel doesn't randomly die in this Spider-Man property? Mm, oh, my have... gosh. Oof, that was brutal. That is the last time I saw Spider-Man news. Oof. Um, you know, the interesting thing about... Another interesting thing as a longtime fan of the comics for me playing the game is it used to be in the 80s when I started reading the comic, team-ups outside of the book that was actually called Marvel Team-Up were a rare and precious thing. Mm, yeah. And in Insomniac Spidey's universe, the other heroes very clearly exist. You can run around the city and see Avengers Tower and the Sanctum Sanctorum and stuff, all that stuff. But you very, oh, you've run into any other hero exactly once, as far as I know, across all three games, and it's in Spider-Man 2, and it's just a cameo. Mm-hmm. It, I, it really goes a long way towards, I, you know, this is a story about Peter, not Peter as a facet of the greater universe. This is his little chunk of it. He's defending his territory and it lets you focus on him in a way that the comics feel a little bit scared to do right now. Ask you how you feel about this, Thomas. Um, I, I don't want to talk about the gameplay. Like, cause to me, honestly, the gameplay, especially the combat is the least interesting thing about um, the, these games. But in terms of, the story and Peter Parker as a character. I have never been like a huge fan of the tech heavy stuff. And it is definitely used to supplement the gameplay into like unique stuff. But I, I don't know the insomniac Spider-Man and like the MCU Spider-Man feel very heavy into a tech in a way that I don't feel super comfortable with. Does that make sense? Like it doesn't feel appropriate. One of my big, one of my big MCU hot takes is I really don't like how the first two, Marvel uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man movies are effectively Iron Man 3.5 and 3.75. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it does make a great deal of sense to me that if you're keeping the part of the character, which is to say Peter Parker, where he's a genius electrical engineer who invented the web shooters in the first place. Sure. 
that a Peter Parker who started the superhero gig in 2010 would have invested heavily in wearable technology and have all that shit in his suit built in from the get-go. Sure. Um, the fact the Insomniac stuff where it's very clearly all of his own homebrew stuff and some of the stuff that in Spider-Man 2 he very clearly stole from Doc Ock, um, that makes a lot of sense to me simply because it feels like a natural evolution of the character. It uh, mm-hmm. adds something for him to be able to upgrade and evolve over the course of the game, which does not also involve giving him explicitly new powers or, let's face it, some of the gadgets in the first game were kind of out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Like the concussion blast. Fun yeah. to use. Why does he have that? Um, is, is this it, your favorite Spider-Man game? The I would call the trilogy all in all. I Like I said, I still haven't beaten... Like, do you feel comfortable Spider-Man in saying game. that? What is your favorite Spider-Man game? Mm, yep. His over, I would argue that his overall average is probably high. If you talked about game, video games with Spider-Man in them, I'd have to give it to the 1995 Marvel Super Heroes Arcade Fighter. Okay. Because I've got a lot of history with that game. Sure. Um, as far as modern games with Spider-Man in them, it's it, it's got to be this, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, there aren't that. There aren't any real other games where he's not just part of the big Marvel crowd. This is really the only Spider-Man solo game in years. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and in and in terms of Spider-Man solo stuff, like obviously Insomniac Spider-Man took a lot of inspiration from Spider-Man Two. Or not, Sp- yeah, Spider-Man 2, the, the Raimi game in terms of web swinging, but they also streamlined it in a much more efficient way. And then they took a lot of combat stuff from the Arkham games, which is why like, I, I kind of feel like it's a, just a very blockbustery thing. But I think also when I played this one, I definitely got a lot of vibes, especially with how they were reinterpreting things of um, uh, Ultimate Spider-Man. Ultimate Spider-Man was my favorite uh, Spider-Man game. Um because it felt so much like a comic book in terms of aesthetic and its story beats to them. Um, and here, you know, eh, I, I would still like there to be more stylization, but even then, I think this is probably the best there is. Yeah, I liked Ultimate Spider-Man just fine up until the Black Cat chase sequence, which I remember getting very frustrated by. There's some spotty moments, to be sure. That yes. and um, it, it would be almost be the subject of an entire another podcast, and I've already monopolized enough time as it is, but... Uh, Venom is really just the tumor at the tip of the franchise at this point. And, uh, Anti-Venom. Not... That makes sense. Yeah, no, that's not crazy. But did you like... Without spoilers, are you liking the way the Venom direction's going in this Spider-Man 2? I appreciate that they didn't do the same thing as normal. I don't like some of the stuff that I've been slightly spoiled on that uh, ties into some recent comics lore which is kind of questionable okay uh all right um but the the big thing is that i feel like venom in general is just um he's shallow to me he's shallow he's shallow and he's really oversold he's the roman reigns of marvel sure damn that's such a good comparison yeah yeah that's fair i love that i love that I was going to say, like, the Red Hood, but... <laughs> no, no even entirely. then. He's the death... He's, he's more like the Deathstroke. Okay. Because one of, if you know your DC lore, and I am only vaguely conversant with this, but back in the day in Teen Titans, when it was the bestseller, they had the uh, Judas Contract arc mm-hmm. or something like that. Yes. Judas Contract, yep, that's the name of it. Where uh, Slade put Terra onto the Titans as a ringer. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
and it was established that not at this point that not only Slade was a murderer, but he was also a pedophile. Yep. And the, but then DC took exactly the wrong lesson away from that and spent the next few years making Slade into like this cornerstone of the universe as an anti-hero who is occasionally on the right side rather than the murder pedophile guy. I think that was part of the uh, marketing machine for DC to, uh, I don't know what the words are exactly, take comics seriously as media, but you know, the grim, dark, uh, oh, edgy stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but the thing about uh, Spider-Man in that is when Venom came around, I like I said, I started reading with Roger Stern's arc on Amazing Spider-Man in the 80s, which is notable because that's where the Hobgoblin comes from. Yeah. And Peter spends a lot of that period of time in that in the comics just desperately roving around Manhattan in New York City trying to find the Hobgoblin before he hurts somebody else because his big thing is crippling neurosis about anything that he perceives to be his problem. Yeah. Then Venom shows up and all of that gets thrown out to oversell Venom as the next big threat. He should be a threat. But he's not such a big threat to Spider-Man that he, that Spider-Man will do something like fake his death so Venom will go off to San Francisco and leave him alone. Yeah. Which is an actual thing from the David, Mich uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Michelini? But the Michelini, Todd McFarlane, Mark Bagley, Eric Larson years. Yeah. And um, so he started off in kind of like this, like I said, he's oversold. He's the Roman Reigns of Marvel. And ever, nothing they've really done since then has convinced me to have more affection for the character. I understand completely the best Spider-Man villain is Dr. Octopus. Anyways, moving... <laughs> well, I have... Does this feel like it bears the weight of being the only exclusive to the PS5? <laughs> no, I'm sure the answer is no. It's barely, I wouldn't say it's barely, but it is just a small amount better than Spider-Man 1. Honestly, I think it probably could have stood to have another couple of months of polish before they released it. And I feel like that's where the bugs we've been discussing have come from. Mm -hmm. And I, I would imagine that though that is because they needed another obvious system selling exclusive. And this is what they did, they landed on. Got to hit before the holiday season, I suppose. Yeah, this yeah. is this is specifically this release date is like, hey... We want people to buy this game for Christmas or like maybe it'll go on sale on Black Friday for like, you know, 10 bucks off or whatever. Yep. All right, Thomas, you've talked enough. It's time for our other guests to take the microphone. No, that's entirely fair. I'll just sit here and gnaw on this paperclip for a while. <laughs> I, what? Murph, what a host with such manners. Continue. How's Tekken 8? Tekken 8 is, is uh, because no other way will do it. I'm going to use my, uh, my swear jar moment here. Tekken 8 is fucking sick. Um, I also, also I, accepted fuzzy. <laughs> uh, also, I agree with uh, uh, Thomas's earlier point about uh, Venom being Deathstroke. As someone who likes Deathstroke as a character, he shows up way too damn much. Venom is just the same problem. But anyway, Tekken Eight is great. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, and I can I can talk about this now. Um, I was flown to uh, Namco Bandai headquarters. I guess it's Bandai Namco now. It always throws me in uh, Irvine, California. Uh, earlier this month and i spent two days there and i played a lot of tech and i interviewed michael murray who's producer on tech and eight and i've been doing a bunch of stuff for ign basically over the course of the whole month writing about the game playing the new closed beta which just finished if you didn't play it i'm sorry uh it's excellent um and i cannot wait to play more of it it's it's you know fighting games are hard to talk about why they're really great without getting into the weeds of what makes the genre cool but 
Tekken 8 feels like it's doing the thing that the great fighting games do, where it's building on its predecessor. Tekken 7 is a great game. It looks better. It sounds better. It feels better to play. There's really cool new mechanics in the heat system, which allow you to do things that you can't do while you're not in heat that is also easy to understand, unlike meter management in most fighting games. Um, mm-hmm. It has really, really cool stuff that I have uh, talked about uh, actually earlier this week on another podcast. Um, I think the coolest thing that like kind of like sums up what Tekken 8 is about, which is it's going to do everything and it's going to do it well. There's a feature in this game um, called My my Replay and Tips, and this is uh, this has been something that, that uh, Bandai has talked about before, where basically if you fight somebody and you go into their replay, the game will be like, hey, we noticed you weren't punishing this move. Here's how to do it. And then it will stop. You can stop the replay, practice the punish, and then take control of your character in the replay for 10 seconds and do the thing. Oh, that's that's going to be a, a legit. That's going to be in all fighting games 10 years from now. Whoa, I hope so, because that's been in games before. Uh, if you're a Guilty Gear player, that was in Accent Core Plus R. Um, it's been there before. It's not really caught on for whatever reason. Like more recent Guilty Gears don't have it. Um, but the fact that you can just sit there and be like, I want to take control of this moment and see what I could have done. And that it will point out like, Hey, you could have ducked this string. Hey, we see that you're getting thrown a lot. You actually can tech throws by doing this or, Hey, you know, we noticed that like you didn't sidestep this. You could do that. Or you weren't punishing this thing. Here's what you can punish it with. And then it does that automatically that it shows it to you. Then it's like, Hey, you can now take control and do this is, is genuinely really impressive. And the other really cool thing, to give you an idea of like what I think this game is going to make it really, really cool is that Tekken 8 has ghosts. Um, ghosts are... Oh, shit! Take a picture! I'm sorry. I know. We're on the horror podcast. We got ghosts. Um, so it has, it has a mode called Super Ghost Battle, which I love the name of. It's not just Ghost Battle. These are super ghosts. Um, where <laughs> when you play the game, it learns your play style. So, bro, if you and I played a bunch, right? Mm-hmm. And you were kicking my ass right Mm -hmm. and you had to go for the day and i was like man like i can go into my replay and tips and i can learn some stuff but then i still really want to fight you i can go fight your ghost and your ghost will play exactly like you do because the game has been that's gonna expose some frauds that's like huh i don't i don't know if i want to fight my ghost i'm afraid what i'll learn the ghost is the mirror to your deep dark psyche of spamming shit continue Yeah, so you can fight your own ghost, um, but basically anybody that you run into online, you can go and fight their ghost. And I did this during the beta uh, because they had that functionality available and it feels like fighting a real person. Like if they like to do a certain thing at round start, the ghost will do that. If they have a combo that they really like to do, but they sometimes drop it, the ghost will do the combo and drop it. And like it is constantly learning. It feels like a real person that you are playing. And to have this functionality that you can just go into at any time, just be like, hey, I played this dude before. Let me go to his profile. I want to fight his ghost. And you can do it as much as you want. Just stuff like that. And the My Replay and Tips things. And just the way that the game feels. Anybody who's played Tekken 8 and either the CNT or the CBT uh, this last weekend will know that the game feels really excellent. Just all this stuff coming together makes it like, I'm, I, I want more Tekken. It's not fair that I have to wait until January for more Tekken. It's great. The, the only concern anyone has ever voiced, and I'm, I am ready to hear your take after playing the, uh, 
the test was how is the net code? Uh, so I think your mileage is going to vary a little bit. Um, so, so for, for, so people understand this, I live in New York. Uh, I play on a wired connection and I thought, honestly, it was pretty good. Um, to give you an example, I was playing, uh, bro Timo, uh, who lives in Germany and we ran sets for probably about two hours. Smooth. Yep. New York to Germany. Smooth. Um, was there a little bit of stuttering? Yes, but it's also a beta, right? Uh, but by and large, my experience with Tekken 8's netcode has been that it is very good, provided both people have stable internet. I hear if you don't use an Ethernet cable, Harada comes to your house and hits you with the Demon God Fist. I've been told that that's also true. However, I will say that Timo uh, was playing on Wi-Fi and we had a very smooth connection. Okay. The problem is that Harada will do that, but he does it of his own violation because if you try to direct his rage, that counts as asking him for shit, and he will instead demon god fist you. Yes. Yes. I, I actually got to hear the story about where the don't ask me for shit uh, t-shirt came from. That was pretty great. Well, I was over at Emco Bandai. Um, but, yeah, I think Tekken 8 is awesome. I think um, we're kind of in, like, a golden era for fighting games, right? Like, yep. uh, a renaissance, mm-hmm. if you will. You know, we had Guilty Gear Strive a couple years ago. Excellent game. We had Street Fighter 6 this year. Great game. Mortal Kombat 1 just came out. That's really good. You know, uh, sometimes and, there's waves of popularity for a fighting game. It's like everyone get in, you know, there's a rising tide of everyone just like playing games. Fighting games are good when there's other people playing them. And th- this is the time. It also feels like it's the first time in a while that all the big names have a new game out at the same time, you know? I mm-hmm. think what you've got here is the end of the blip that was the work from home move during the pandemic. Oh, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's not. Every wave there was seems to have crusted at once in 2023. I was just writing earlier today about how survival horror is back in a big way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great um, year for survival horror this year, too. Uh, but great year for RPGs. Yeah, great year for a lot of stuff. You know, a lot of really good games coming out. Um, I think that maybe some of them aren't as great as people are making out. I think we have a lot more good games than great games this year. We've talked about this uh, before the show started, but I do think it's really telling that like the big three in fighting games for all intents and purposes, street fighter, MK and Tekken are releasing within eight months of each other. And you would know if they were bad because I'm going to be real. MK 11's not great in my opinion. And street Uh fighter five on launch was also not great in my opinion. So it's, it's also like effort. You know what I mean? Like doing decent enough to make people want to play your game. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that MK1 has like issues, obviously. Like, you know, there was the big thing about like the player two glitch. The the game has problems. um, And I think it it came out maybe a little bit before it was was done. But, uh, you know, NetherRealm has been patching it and it is getting better. I still think it's a good game. But, you know, I look at Tekken and I look at, you know, 32 characters are uh, launch they're going to have all this you know functionality like ghosts and replays and rollback net code and you know all this stuff and it's just like i don't know like you know the amount of money that it must have cost to develop that game the amount of money that it cost it must have cost to make any of those three games you know, look you look at mortal Kombat and you can see how expensive it is yeah um it's just crazy they got megan fox money i'm just kidding sure. yeah they, yeah they, they do it could have been spent better elsewhere but they do <laughs> How do you feel about the Tekken 8 roster? I want to hear what Thomas had to say, and then I'll answer oh, the question. Sure. I was just going to def- speak in mild defense of Megan Fox, because Jess- Jennifer's body is still a banger. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Jennifer's, Jennifer's body is a banger. You, I... you, 
you can't take that away from her. I think no. voice acting is a separate talent from normal acting. I think yeah. she was just poorly directed. It felt like she. Oh, had that's a also totally a thing. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's kind of my opinion on it. You also like there's a difference in the sound quality of her lines versus some of the other stuff. So I feel like it was probably not recorded like in a booth, maybe yeah. not locally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you ever played one of those indie games where it's very clear they went for whatever voice actors they could find and they're all on very different microphone quality? Yep. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brutal. And and that's kind of how it is with MK1. I don't think the performance is necessarily her fault, as people have said. You know, voice acting versus on-screen acting, very different. Versus theater acting, also very different. Um, and obviously, you know, at a certain point, it is up to the voice director. But I do think, like her performance is notable and then it's a little bit flat when most of the performances in that game are not. Um, to Murph's question, how do I feel about the roster? I think it's good. Uh, I think personally, you know, obviously like Tekken is, is in a really weird place because it's so long running and so expansive. Um, you know, there's eight, eight mainline Tekken games. Uh, MK is on its 12th, but it's older than Tekken is. Street Fighter's only on six. You know, like there's, there's not many games that have had as many releases as Tekken has had over the period of time that Tekken has had that many releases. Um, and you look at that roster, and I was talking to Michael Murray about this uh, when I was in California, and we talked about, you know, how do you determine who to bring back? And he said, it's really hard. You know, if you look at, like, the amount of characters that have been in Tekken, it's like 70. It's a crazy number um, over the years. And so if you're sitting there and you're planning a roster, you know, 32 is a big roster for a fighting game at launch. I want to say Street Fighter 6 had 18, Strive had 15, MK has like 24. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 32 is a big number. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the the roster is really good. You know, you've got your standbays like Kazuya and Jin. You've got uh, King. You know, you've got Lily. You've got Asuka. You've got uh, really cool new characters in Nazusena, who I think is fantastic. Um, you know, old throwbacks like Paul, you've got a little bit of everything. And you've got people who like came out in Tekken 7, you know, like uh, Leroy, right? DLC character in 7, he's here in 8, he feels great. I played him a lot during the beta. Um, But I think they've done a really good job of like getting a very focused roster that feels like it's from kind of all eras of Tekken and maybe trimming like a little bit of the extra characters that, you know, maybe aren't as popular or you don't see as much. Um, You know, we need to have bears, right? Like you have to have Kuma and Panda, but I don't know if we really Paul need, is in like, the game. Paul is in the game. Yes. I mean, you, you could be forgiven for not noticing that because he's got, I think he wandered into the wrong hairdresser at some point. He's going to whoever Ken Masters is going to. <laughs> I think Ken's hair in, in six looks fine. <laughs> I mean, in comparison to five, yes. Yeah, I mean, Paul's hair is, is a little bit goofy. I think, you know, his normal haircut is a little bit goofy. But, you know, the, the thing about Tekken is there's going to be so many customization options. If you don't like his haircut, you're probably able to have him wear a hat or something. Maybe even change it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the roster is really good. Um, obviously, we don't know who everybody is yet. Um, I think we only know 26 of the characters, something around that number. We haven't seen all the trailers yet. Uh, we don't know who everybody is. So there's more, you know, there's more to come. But I think in terms of like building a roster, they did a really good job. You know, I think the only thing that people are going to be a little upset about is so far, there's not a lot of new characters. Azusena is the only one. But other than that, it's great. And if you want to learn more, uh, Will has done extensive coverage on what's been, you know, out so far. You can check that out on IGN. Yes, and we have uh, more stuff coming uh, this week. And we have more stuff coming next week, too. So there's, there is more. Damn, so. dog. I'm ready for more. But, yeah. but until then, I got me some plumbers. 
What wonderful plumbers, Murph. You've played Mario Wonder. I, I have. I have been playing Mario Wonder. Um, you know, I'm not one of those people that are like, the new Super Mario games are, are bad, actually. Like, I, I have fond memories of the first Mario, a new Super Mario Brothers, and the Wii one. I think the issue overall became is that we got, like, four or five of those. And they... And they all kind of wound up bleeding together, like Mario, New Super Mario Brothers two, with its like gold coin gimmick, didn't like amount to much. Um, it just felt like the series had really stagnated for the for a while, and then Wonder comes in, and I'm just gonna sound like every other reviewer out there, but it's like a breath of fresh air. It is so pleasant to look at this sort of like claymation look to everything uh my favorite animations are like characters going in and out of the pipes it's like you know you, if you go into a pipe that's like horizontally like mario will run in and he'll leave his hat behind like hovering in the air and he'll reach back out and grab it when they exit a pipe they'll look around see where they're at and then pop out it's got so much charm and character to it which really helps carry it because i think this is like one of the easiest Mario games I've played in a while. Um, part of that is because it has a lot of uh, the, the online features, uh, which kind of work in a, like a Dark Souls kind of way, where if you're in the same level as uh, three other players, you can see them running around like they're ghosts. Um, and if you die in the level, you turn into a ghost and can chase one of them down. If you touch them, you'll come back. And that's, like, you know, does ultimately make the levels very easy. But I, I honestly, it adds a lot of charm and fun to the gameplay itself. Like, I'm always excited to see other people in the level. Especially since uh, you can leave items for them. You can help each other out by dropping standees, which sort of work as a respawn point for other players. If you finish the level at the same time, uh, you get, like, a special animation and you're heart score goes up. I don't really know what that is, but it exists. And you can just kind of, like, signal to each other, like, where secrets are and things like that. It's just a really fun, like, collaborative experience. Uh, amplified by the fact that you have, like, 12 playable characters. Yes, a few of them are reskins, but even, like, the Yoshis have different voices, which I wasn't expecting. Like, the the red Yoshi has, like, a slightly higher pitch from green Yoshi, and then light blue Yoshi has a deeper pitch. It's weird. Um, I also like the power-ups in this. I, I've, I said previously on our uh, PAX episode that my issue with a lot of the recent Marios is that the power-ups, they'll have, like, two old standards and then have, like, some new power-up that can just do everything that the game is ultimately built around, like the Cat Bell in New Super Mario uh, World. In this, you have the elephant apple, you have the drill mushroom, the bubble flower, and the fire flower, and they're all used pretty evenly and all have very clear uses. It's uh, it's great. Like, I wasn't expecting, like, the bubble flower to be one of my favorite new abilities, but the fact you can use it to, like, get to secret areas and just sort of fill the screen with projectiles, uh, that's really great and fun. Yeah, um, I've played Wonder as well. And for me, to start on my new Super Mario Bros. take, um, yeah, I think the big problem was is they went for the generic uh, it, like s generic style. To me, New Super Mario Bros. was to maintain a brand. 
and to maintain like you know in the same way disney would make a mickey mouse cartoon once in a while or perpetuate mickey mouse as a cartoon it's like yes he still exists like this so we can do other things with this ip um but that being said you know nintendo's c game is like some developers a game you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. like new super mario's is still solid even when it's very flat um so when you play wonder and you see there you know when they try to have a dedicated art direction or unique powers or interesting stages the big takeaway i've i've seen from playing it for me personally is despite the lack of difficulty um there is still a lot of variety and the difficulty that is there is sort of optional in a very organic way in terms of how you how many collectibles you want and yeah if you just want to beat the game this is very clearly something you can breeze through but um the sort of challenges in how much you put into it yourself so i enjoy that as well um i i like this game a lot yeah i thought when it was flat it was paper mario (laughs) you caught me (laughs) i set myself up for that one it really helps that the levels uh don't have a timer anymore which i only realized like halfway through the fourth world um it really helps to that uh, collaborative element with the ghosts because you can just kind of linger around and like, you know, if someone's clearly struggling with a part, you can just keep popping in and revive them endlessly and they'll give you like a little emote, like, thank you for that. Uh, and it helps out with that, especially with like the wonder effects, the fact that every level has a wonder effect and some of them are like really hidden away. Um, and they do all sorts of like, weird and wacky stuff like some just my favorite ones are the ones that change you into enemies and you have to like play the game that way like you have to play it as a goomba that can't jump and every playable character has a unique goomba sprite that's really cute or one where there's like this new enemy that kind of looks like a cake and it can like deflate when things are on top of it and you play the level as that trying not to get too much stuff on you and that you just go completely flat and die um, yeah, it's really nifty, and, like, it's one of those things that's, like, no level has the same gimmick twice. Sometimes you'll see repeated wonder effects, like, there's one that, uh, turns the game into a top-down, uh, dungeon crawler. Uh, that one I've seen at least three times, but they do different things with it each time. Like, one time you're going through a maze, another you're trying to race to the end of this level as, like, lava's rising. Uh, it's really neat. Uh, my biggest issue with the game is that all the bosses are the same boss. And that's really disappointing with how creative and inventive this game is. It's just variations on Bowser Jr. And it's the Bowser Jr. fight from the new Super Mario games. Where he... Which is just like the Super Mario Bros. 3. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. they just get in the shell, they go around, and you jump on them. Yeah. And it, they do do some cool stuff where he gets, like, wonder powers and he changes up the terrain or something like that. But I just kind of wish it's like, well, why couldn't you give me, like, a Goomba gets wonder powers and you fight, like, a, a souped-up Goomba or stuff like that. Just, like, more memorable bosses. Instead, it's just Bowser Jr. each time. Or if you do an airship, it's this really lame Bowser conveyor belt that you have to fight. Uh, Yeah, I think that's my biggest like like missed mark with the game the bosses need work <laughs> so i have a question as someone who played the game at, at pax west and hasn't gotten my hands on the full thing yet one of the things i really appreciated about it was well i guess there's two things first is that it plays very 
fast, which is to mm-hmm. say that yeah. like, you know, some of the new Super Mario Brothers games, like you feel a little bit slower. It's a little more deliberate. This like feels very like quick. Um, you know, is that there still in the full game? Like, is that kind of just the way the game is? Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you incorporate the badges, which can completely change your game style. Uh, the badges you kind of have to... Some you can purchase at stores. Others you have to beat challenges uh, that sort of introduce you to the mechanic of the badge. And those are really where it's at for changing up your gameplay. Because all the characters play the same. Save like the Yoshis play like Yoshis. And Nabbit is just like nothing can hurt me mode. Um, But like Luigi and Mario jump the same. But with the badges you can do stuff like give yourself a double jump. Or you get like the uh, the triple jump where you you know you jump once, jump twice, jump a third time, and that's extra high. There you can make your dash faster. Or there's like special like challenge badges like you never stop jumping or you're constantly running or things like that. Um, and that can make like the game like you know extra hard for you if you want. Like I did a level with the uh, constant running badge and it just like felt like a completely different game. But yeah, that speed is definitely there, which helps moving around these levels, because some of these have, like, secrets on secrets. Like, I did, like, a wonder effect, got to a secret area, and then I saw these, like, player ghosts, like, vanishing into a wall. And I was like, what's what's up with that? And there's actually, like, a, a hidden block there that you can hit that triggers an effect that uh, goes into the secret pipe where you come into the foreground of the level and actually run past the flag and then run back to the flag from the other end. Yeah, it's just it's just neat like that. So my, my second question, right, my follow-up, if you will, is one of the things that I thought was really cool was that, uh, and I don't know how much time you're spending in the multiplayer, Murph, but one of the things I thought was really cool with PAX West was, um, like, you can't really jump on each other. You can't really, like, interact with the other players. You just kind of go through them. Uh, and I found that, like, because of that, it made the game way more... Uh, cooperative. Yeah, and very much less like I'm going to jump on your head and send you into this pit, right? Which is fun, uh, but your wife doesn't like it when you do it like three pits in a row. Um, It's so funny, though. The collision is no longer there if you're doing local multiplayer, um, which I think is a boon because I remember like when they were like, oh, new Super Mario Bros. for the Wii, up to four players at once, and no one liked playing it because everyone was just at intentionally or accidentally killing each other. I will defend Collision in New Super Mario Bros. multiplayer. It feels like Mario Bros., like the classic arcade game. It's meant to be like a co-op plus a little bit of fuck. I always felt like the camera needed to be pulled out more for that to work. I think think they did. I think they fucked it up yet, but. Counterpoint, New Super Mario Bros. for the Wii U ruined my first marriage. Whoa, okay. I, there's a lot to unpack there. All right. I don't think we have the time for that. We're 43 minutes in. Just just bury those feelings deep down inside. Just chew on your paperclip. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, I'm entirely kidding, but it was funny to see your reaction. Okay. <laughs> I, I was just sitting there imagining, like, the storyline that could have, you know, precipitated such... No, a, a I want the Super Acorn! Listen, I was having a great time thinking about that. So Super Luigi, you, I kinda get. <laughs> I, was, I was complaining about how she kept kicking me into bottomless pits, and what will you know, the therapist took her side. Oh my gosh. Because you were also kicking him into bottomless pits? 
Well, we were playing at the time, so maybe yeah. there was an addiction pattern. But and that's 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 how you ruin your marriage. You you play. And then we were like, well, you know what? Let's stop playing this and pick up Overcooked instead. And that was just all over for everything. You party. know what else is like failed marriages? I'm really curious to see how you <laughs> nail this one because I feel like it's a long shot. Horror games of the PS2. <laughs> I decided to do that. I fucked up. Are y'all ready for the variety minute? If you want to do that over, we do edit this podcast, right? You you can do that over. I'm the one who edits it. Bro, I, like, I, I, I ain't got time for that. I'll take the L. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's all good. Let's let's roll with it. You guys want to do the variety minute or yeah, not? Yeah, yeah. I've said my wonder thoughts. The game's good. You know the game's good. Everyone's saying it's a good game. Go Go play it. Go look at it. This week's Variety Minute is Horror Games of the PS2. Did we land on that? Yes. Oh, that was landed. Okay. I was. I thought we landed on horror games, not of the jo- of the uh, gen. But I'm okay with that. This uh, is because this is Thomas's fault because he posted that picture of all those like PS2 era horror games, and I was like, damn. Let me let me posit one thought, and then we can flesh out with Thomas's thing. I think horror is one of the best genres for dedicated art direction in games, and thus. PS2 3D models for horror games kind of look good still, depending on the game. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, I, I am of the opinion, right, that, like, and we'll talk about this when we get into the, you know, the game that we're all here to discuss, allegedly, but, like, RE4 still looks really good. Mm-hmm. Like, the original, not the remake. It still yeah. looks really good. The game we're here to discuss tonight is, like, peak aesthetic. That game looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, horror games hold up visually. The suffering, like, you know, still yep. looked really good it's from that era. Good good art design goes a long way. Mm-hmm. And I think also, like, getting into the new generation, the uh, the sound design gets a, a punch-up as well. You know, you got that. This They kind of experimented with the CD technology with the PS1, but here it's like, no, now you can get, like, panning footsteps across, like, your speakers and such. And... Uh, just the layering of audio, especially in our game of the week, uh, really gets better with the PS2 era. Mm-hmm. I think one of the smart moves that started on the original PlayStation and the same generation is really leaning into the platform's limitations to enhance what it is you're trying to do. Uh, for example, obviously I'm going to start talking about the first Silent Hill now where, you know, all of its issues with draw distance for being the original PlayStation were instead repurposed as, oh, the town is wrapped in spooky fog. Mm -hmm. And when I put it like that, it makes it sound sort of silly. But when you're actually playing the game, the fact that at any second, something that looks like a skinned Doberman is going to lunge out of that spooky fog and try to take a piece out of you, it loops back around to being extraordinarily effective. Yeah, Mm -hmm. as someone who played the first Silent Hill, I still haven't finished it, but who's been playing it for the first time this year, I've never played a Silent Hill game uh, up until now, and everyone's like, oh, you should start with one. And so I said, okay, you can get it for five bucks on the PS3 store, right? So I picked it up, and I'm playing it with my wife, and I'm wandering through the fog. And when the, and this goes back to uh, Merce's point about, like, you know, audio design makes a big difference. Um, 
when you hear footsteps in that game and you're in the fog and you can't see, it is scary. You're like, wait a minute, that's not me. There's something else in here with me and I don't know where it is. Have you gotten to the elementary school yet? That's the next place I'm going. Oh my I, goodness. Then I ain't saying shit. I love Silent, Silent Hill PS1 is probably one of my favorite art designs, art directions for the PlayStation 1. Because it was like sort of later into the PlayStation 1 where they really started to figure things out. And that was there was like a point in time where they wanted to push Silent Hill to be a storytelling like big game before Team Silent wanted to do its own thing. And going into the PS2, yeah, that's right. We're bringing it back. Um, I think... Silent Hill 2 and 3, especially 3. Oh my gosh. And I like 4, but 3 to me looks gorgeous. The hair on Heather looks fantastic. Note he just spoiled part of Silent Hill 3. Yeah, her hair looks great. No one, Will doesn't know who this person is. That's true, I, yeah. I don't know who this person is. I mean, let, let's really get into it because uh, talking about horror games on the PS2, we might as well just call this the Silent Hill Minute because we got four different releases. You got two through four and Homecoming, unless there's like a spinoff I don't know about. Shattered Memories came out on this, I think. And I think, uh, yeah, yeah, I think some of the others came out on this. But did it come out to that as ported from the Wii? Yes. yes. Shattered Memories came out on the PlayStation 2 super late. So did Origins. On, yeah. That was a PSP or, original. Mm-hmm. But I think part of the problem with horror on the PS2 generation is towards the end of it, that was before digital storefronts were a thing. And you definitely started to run into this crisis point where it wasn't worth publishing a game for the system if it was going to be aimed at a niche audience. And for the most part, horror is a niche. It may be a very popular niche, but it's not. It's something which deliberately doesn't appeal to everyone. Uh, like I used to read in Fangoria magazine, horror is either in you or it isn't. It's very difficult to convert somebody to liking it if they're determined not to. And so there are a fair number of really good horror games in the PS2 that are not Silent Hill. Mm -hmm. But most of them are obscure, especially now, or have since been or have since been so mismanaged they fell by the wayside like uh i i'm looking at that picture i posted uh for example kuan is a completely niche release by now uh no very few people know about it and nobody's willing to drop a grand on ebay for it because they made three of them i'm i i know kuan because i'm fairly certain there was an x-play episode on it oh my goodness um Theomini, one of the guests of the show, is a huge FromSoft uh, historian, so we know a little bit about Let, let me ask you th this, Thomas, as the expert. Uh, do you have opinions on this game, Rule of Rose? You know, I have a copy of it, but it's preview code. I don't, I, you can't play it on a retail PS2. Oh, okay. Because I've looked at a few different lists to sort of get an idea and this game keeps popping up, and each one has a completely different take. Either it's the worst game ever released for the PS2, or it's this niche, niche avant-garde hidden gem. I think they'll treat horror as a genre in anything. As it's like, it's a love or hate in a lot of titles. Because mm -hmm. sometimes production's at fault. Sometimes the content is hostile to some people's uh, tastes, is I guess the 
way to say that. You know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of people love or hate specific horror based on this. I think that's just natural. Let me draw a parallel for you. Have any of you played this 2021 Steam game called Tormented Souls? Yes. No, yeah. I have not. Remothered? No, I'm not. I, I, I have not played Remothered. Um, Isn't it Remothered Tormented Souls, or am I thinking of something else? You're thinking of something else. This okay. is just a standalone game called Tormented Souls. The thing about, the, re- the reason I'm bringing it up is that Tormented Souls, past a certain point, is 100% vibes. It is entirely about its creepy atmosphere, and everything that happens in the game is in the service of enha- heightening and enhancing that atmosphere. If you look at it as a linear sequence of events, it makes less than no sense. And Rule of Rose is kind of in that same vein, because once again, everything about it is in the service of feeling like a twisted nursery rhyme. I was just talking about Alan Wake 2 earlier with someone, because I've got a review coming out for that. And one of the things which is really important for horror in general, in any medium, not just video games, but any medium, is the willing suspension of disbelief. If you go into any horror material looking to make fun of it or just determined to not let it hit you, you're not going to have a good time. You have to be willing to shut off that part of your brain and let it have its way with you. Rule of Rose is very much supposed to be this screwed up sort of fairy tale about an orphanage and a bunch of nursery rhyme parallels. And if you're willing to ride with that and let it go, that's about as good as a time as you're going to have with it. If you're walking into it from a Resident Evil, where as silly as some of the Resident Evil games happen to be, they do have a linear narrative that more or less makes sense. But Rule of Rose deliberately does not. So obviously there are going to be people who think, okay, I am vibing with this. This is exactly in my strike zone. I'm glad I played this. And there are going to be other people who are going, I spent $500 to uh, run around at a fast walking speed as a small English orphanage girl before the World War II or whatever I want to say it's set in the 40s. Uh, yeah, looking at the synopsis, that appears correct. Does it feel like in the PS2 era that horror games kind of fall on a spectrum between like wanting to be Resident Evil 4 or wanting to be Silent Hill 2? Much more Silent Hill 2. I think that in the immediate aftermath, Resident Evil 4 was much more influential on action games mm. than it was mm-hmm. on horror. Because if you look at the, especially the generation right after that, Cliff Blazinski has said outright in writing that Gears of War was inspired by Resident Evil 4. You can also part of Uncharted, uh, a, maybe a dozen other high-profile games with that behind-the-back camera perspective. Uh, for horror, everything since then has been trying to be on some level or another Silent Hill 2. That's the gold standard. I know people are sick of hearing it, but... There's no point in being coy around it. You can also say good things about Silent Hill 3. Uh, if somebody's really deep in the weeds like I am, they might bring up Haunting Ground. I know Haunting Ground. I know someone that really likes Haunting Ground. I have a question. We're going to get into this because I think this is also a big thing regarding Fatal Frame. Is is I think there is a literal... For me personally, there is a camera shift focus. When you have a fixed camera perspective... Um, there is a deliberate sort of tension, whereas it's over the shoulder, there's action. And if you look at what's been influenced by stuff, you could argue there are horror elements to Dead Space. You could argue there are horror elements to Gears of War. Those are clearly action games, right? But it's, for me, I think it's because of that camera shift and how, how that pace goes. It's like very clearly like once Resident Evil 4 happens, oh, we're going along this route. Um, 
Whereas with the Silent Hill or the Fatal Frames, um, they still stuck for a while on these fixed cameras and these fixed cameras really started to work for them um, with the camera angles really popping. And for, thankfully for Fatal Frame, it also utilizes a nice first person perspective in certain moments to really ratchet up what things, you know, what's going on. Um, the nice thing about Fatal Frame we'll get into later is I think it has the best combat of a fixed camera game. Mm -hmm. I also, you know, I think, and as someone who's been playing, like, you know, obviously been playing Crimson Butterfly um, in preparation for this podcast. Uh, I, I think that fixed camera angles in a lot of ways, especially in the 3D space, are a lost art. Yeah. You know, yeah. Resident Evil 4 is one of those games that this feels really weird to say about Resident Evil 4 because I think it's one of the best games ever made. But I also think that it has the Halo Call of Duty uh, problem where it was so successful that it actually made the medium worse. I get what you mean, because it's sort of a blueprint for everyone else to not phone it in. But like there, it's there's a blueprint for it now. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, we have to do this because this is the standard now. I, I always go back to, like, as a way to explain this example to people who maybe don't get it is, uh, like, regenerating health in Halo, right? Pre-Halo, nobody had regenerating health. Post-Halo, everything had it. Even in games where it didn't make sense, where the combat was not designed around mm -hmm. having regenerating health, right? In Halo, it made sense because a lot of the time, you know, you could move around the projectiles. They were actual projectiles. It wasn't hit scan. Like, it made sense for the story. And the entire game was built around this idea that your health was going to come back at least a little bit, right? You were going to get your shields. It doesn't work so good in other games. And it became such a standard for such a long time. And finally, we're back to people moving around. Like, health is a commodity. Health is a resource. You have to manage this. You have to create health packs. Um, but it was actually, like, detrimental to, I think, a lot of games for a very long time. And the more we move away from fixed cameras and how effective that can be and how interesting it can be you know I, I look at a lot of games now where if we have a third person game it's almost guaranteed that it will have an over the shoulder camera and i think it's it's harmful to certain genres horror especially right like yeah not letting you see where you want to see is like horror movies 101 mm -hmm. so yep. I, I think that kind of goes back to what i was saying about turning a technical limitation into a benefit because a lot of the first couple of Resident Evil games, if you look at what they're doing mechanically and with the fixed camera angles, it's a limitation of the hardware. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The big, the big thing about the, for example, the infamous tank controls in uh, the first couple of Resident Evil games in the Silent Hill and the first Silent Hill was there because of the issue where when you do have a fixed camera angle, if you're running in one direction and you switch angles, you might suddenly start running the other direction. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of places in Final Fantasy VII and Parasite Eve in particular where you can really see that effect. I remember this one room in the museum level of Parasite Eve where I kept running back and forth between the same two rooms over and over again because some part of my brain would not let me not do that. I had to actually stop myself and reorient. That's why tank exactly controls are really room. good. Tank controls are built for it. You know what I yeah. mean? Um, a good example of it being ugly is also Devil May Cry, the original Devil May Cry, which has fixed camera angles. To it. And I love the game for the record, but because it has a normal action style to it, you will totally go press the wrong direction when the camera switches. Yeah. This is one of those things where being a lot older than the rest of you kicks in. I remember 
magazine articles about the first Devil May Cry where they were talking about that. Like it was a specific feature. <laughs> like uh, with the with the raw power of the PlayStation Two, we can now have your direction and movement remain the same between two different angles if you go between rooms. <laughs> You're getting that second analog stick utilizing to move the camera. Oh god. <laughs> yeah, I was I was going back and playing a lot of Dreamcast games for an article I wrote earlier this year. Well, or rather an article I contributed to earlier this year. And the sheer number of janky mid-range Dreamcast games that really wish they had that second stick is some of them are really good. It's just kind of heartbreaking that they the, the the hardware hadn't caught up to them yet. Yeah, I always go back to like um Outrigger, Outrigger. You know what I'm talking about. The shooting, it's the shooter. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I is is it Outrigger or Outrigger? I think it's Outrigger. I want to say it's Outrigger. Uh, this says here it's Outrigger. Outrigger, okay. okay. Um, which is a great game, and anybody who hasn't played it should play it. And we're slightly off topic, but I always remember playing that game and thinking, like, man, this you've got a second analog stick in this game. You know, as opposed to, like, the weird, like, camera and control sequence they had to, to kind of implement to let you do stuff. We'd still be talking yeah. about it. Great shooter. Yeah, if we're talking about the Dreamcast, it's still technically PS2 era, so we're in on a technicality. There we go. And this, the podcast is called Day Dreamcast. We have ends, baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this there's this other Dreamcast game called Machinax, Machinax, something like that. It, Played Machinax. Yeah. Um, on the Dreamcast version, you have to turn the camera by, go, by using going left and right on the analog stick while you move with up and down. And I might have been able to get used to it back in the day, but now after 20 years of muscle memory saying there's a right thumbstick that does that for me, I can't make it work in my head. And it's a shame because that is a surprisingly good game for its period. It's like an early ancestor of uh, all those souls like which really want you to parry everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's actually a really good action game. I would recommend it to people who haven't played it. And I mean, there are there are horror elements aplenty in that one because you keep you're going all over the world in front of creepy dudes in masks with knives to uh, steal their brains. It's if if we're just doing the whole gen, do we want to talk GameCube real quick? I mean, the Resident Evil remake is amazing. It's an actually, example. Whoa. Actually, if you, actually if you're going to open this door, I have to jump through it with Eternal Darkness. That I was going to say I don't want to talk about Resident Evil remake. I want to talk about Eternal Darkness. Okay. Not that the remake isn't great, but go ahead, Thomas. Go ahead. I want to hear. I want to hear your thoughts on Eternal Darkness. It's been a while since I played it. It was one of the first games I ever one hundred percented. I got through all three of the endings, so uh, theoretically, I saved that universe. And um, I like that way of uh, looking at getting all the endings. Well, the Wait, thing if is, you've played Eternal Darkness. It actually it makes sense in the plot. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, there are. Th- in Eternal Darkness, there are three gods feuding, and every time you choose one of them to for the villain to serve at the start of the game, you're led into an alternate universe where he went through the next 2,000 years serving that god. But all three of the gods, including their and their fourth antagonist, Mantarok, transcend dimensions. So if you play through the game three times in a row in the same save file, you manage to fuck them all up simultaneously, and they all basically 
Two of them team up to kill the third over and over again, and it's all technically happening simultaneously. Bro, I think we're going to need to do an episode on Eternal Darkness, because every time I hear someone talk about it, I learn, like, seven new things that I didn't know were a feature of the game. It, it, it is it is all that kind of game, where it's every, every second you learn something new. It is, it is a brave game that was willing to take risks. I would like Although to it's put out there that if you guys do an Eternal Darkness cast, I want to be on it. That game rules. I think I've just established that I need to be on it. Yeah, I think okay. I think we need to put the band back together oh for that one. All right, we we will reconvene next Halloween. Twenty twenty four, y'all. We we got we got Halloween happening. We'll do annual tradition. We do a Castlevania episode, and then we get then we get the horror dream team together. There you go, the Ghostbusters. Except it's the the spook buzz out. I I have a question for those more versed in the horror genre pre uh, seventh generation. Because it's some, something I'm wondering. It's It almost seems to me like... And maybe this is the, the 2000s edgelord stank on everything. But it seems like horror games for the PS2 and GameCube and the whole 7th gen got a lot like darker and more daring with like certain themes and imagery. Is that something that was present before, but it was just sort of held back by limitations, or do I just not know enough about... Uh, are you talking about, like, the suffering or something? Yeah, do you want to de-vague that for me, Road Dog? Uh, I don't... The suffering, Manhunt 1, uh, we were talking about Haunting Ground, where, like, the first enemy you encounter, if you die to them, they sexually assault your corpse. Like... Fear. Fear, yeah. I think, I think... that... I think oh, that one ahead, of the Thomas. things you need to uh, take into account there is that from the very start, survival horror as a subgenre has been doing everything from being lightly influenced by film to outright stealing bits and pieces from it out in, in their entirety. One of my favorite bits of Resident Evil trivia is in Code Veronica. There's an early sequence that you can entirely skip where Claire watches a Bandersnatch beat somebody to death against a window while she just can do nothing but watch. Mm-hmm. And the entire site is a, the entire sequence is about shot for shot taken from Return of the Living Dead Part 3. Hmm. Which it, is the... It's the weird one with the woman... No, I just watched Return of the Living Dead Part 3. I know, I know the scene. I need to... And I played Code Veronica. I don't remember this sequence, so maybe I missed it. Yeah, it's. Po- I I think you can skip it if you don't know it's there. But so there is a lot in wi- a lot of ways in which survival horror has always mimicked film, and to a certain extent, the two thousands are the era, especially as you go further into it, where you start getting into the Eli Roth vision of torture porn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't. Saw I, in the yeah, Cabin Fever. I just watched Wrong Turn uh, last week for the first time. So I think what you're talk- what you're seeing there is the interplay of film and games working off of each other. And as horror got darker and more nasty and more interested in gory stuff that for, you know, like Stephen King used to say, uh, it was something along the lines of, uh, I always go for horror. If I can't get horror, I'll go for terror. And if I can't get that, I'll go for the gross out. Yeah. 2000s horror really wanted to go for the gross out, and that got reflected in the games. Mm-hmm. Manhunt? Yeah, I remember. Man- Manhunt, yeah. The suffering also, like we've talked about. I think, you know, to, to add on to Thomas's point briefly, I think it also is kind of a, a right place, right time thing. Um where a bunch of different factors came together. Obviously, like, the film influence is a big thing. I think the tech had finally gotten to a place where you could do a lot of that stuff and, like, show it, and it didn't look terrible. Um, so people wanted to experiment with that. 
I think also and the lo- the more we get away from the early 2000s, the more I think of like it might have been the most interesting period in modern game development where games were trying to be like especially horror games like fatal frame and silent hill were trying to deal with like pretty mature stuff and other horror games like eternal darkness um or like very interested in looking at like very specific things that they were pulling from and saying like we're gonna try to do this in a way that is like you know interesting and, and like i said like mature the writing had gotten to the point where that had happened in the early like 2000s late 90s like i think are still the pinnacle of those things in a lot of ways in terms of like the way we were thinking about presentation the way we were thinking about uh storytelling in games and also you know games weren't so prohibitively expensive in the AAA space where you couldn't you didn't have to worry about like alienating part of your consumer base right i think we've gotten to the point now where things have become so expensive and the expectations have become that everything kind of has to be a little bit like everything else because things have been so expen- uh, expensive. Things can't take risks. Where we're looking at like a period of everything kind of feels a little bit the same. Everything kind of feels like it's trying to appeal to everyone, whereas opposed to like in the early two thousands, that was not the case. And, and also, all those things come together at the right time. And also to go back to the Thomas film thing. Um, Film for horror as a as like a genre in the medium is known for risks. It is relatively cheap and often profitable in like exponential amounts. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. that that is a genre that naturally behooves either risks or iteration. And those are ways that gaming can really benefit. But when you just play it safe and when you don't, you know, do things, it it's unfortunate. Yeah, I think it's also one of those situations where it's like we look at like the foundational horror stuff in gaming right right now and you go back to like a lot of people will say oh it's silent hill 2 it's fatal frame it's you know the original resident evil games and it just so happened to be the period that a lot of those games and a lot of those franchises were like getting their start Mm -hmm. you know and so you had all this creativity for a lot of things that we didn't know at the time but we look back at them now and we're like oh like these are the kind of the progenitors of like what we view games as in this genre right like these are the granddaddies of all of them just happen to be coming out in those periods so i think that's also part of it is it bolstered by the fact that the gen that followed for the ps3 and xbox 360 just kind of left horror by the wayside inexplicably i think that has to go do more with what will mentioned that the jump in uh both competition and expense for making a game in any space uh got went up geometrically between the ps2 and ps3 i know that that's depending on who you talk to people will credit that to the downfall of konami who went from being able to throw out whatever stupid idea flew into their head in the ps2 to making a relative handful of games for PS3, all of which were deliberately aimed to be demographically successful. Mm-hmm. They were they were they went from being right. willing to experiment to betting only on sure things like everybody else in the space. That's the unfortunate downside of the HD era. Other point that I would uh I think that in the 2000s to dovetail off what something Will was saying, you also saw this increasing acknowledgement that video games as a medium had grown beyond being just kid stuff in 1996 the original resident evil has a sequence in the original japanese rev where 
Do you, any of you remember that really embarrassing FMV video at the start of the original Resident Evil where they're all doing, like, cool action guy stuff as they introduce yeah. the characters? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, in the Japanese rev of that, Chris Redfield smokes a cigarette. And yeah. that's deleted from the American version of the original Resident Evil. Because at that point, uh, you could not show smoking anything which was deliberately targeted at children. And because Resident Evil was a video game, it was considered to still be targeted at children. Mm. A few years later, the PlayStation 2 happened to be where everybody know, everybody kind of decided at once that, you know what, video games have matured. They are no longer a specifically child-focused hobby. There, it is now entirely germane, especially with the advent of the ESRB M rating, to have video games that are meant to appeal to an adult audience. And so you had games which were very self-consciously about gut-blasting violence, you had games that were about sex to one extent or another, like the that infamous BMX XXX thing. <laughs> we just talked about that last episode with Lucas. Continue. Or uh, the guy game, which oh, is my, just a oh hilarious misfire. It's still banned on Twitch. Yes. I mean, well, it should be banned from life because a lot of those girls were underage. And didn't, yeah. But, and to, uh, and for Resident Evil 4 in particular, and I know I just said that I didn't think it had that much of an influence on horror, but I'm officially going back on that. Because Resident Evil 4 is very self consciously a Lucio Fulci splatter flick from the 70s. It's color palette, uh, what happens to people, the gratuitous amounts of decapitation. And I think that, in a cert- to a certain extent, that's also a starting bell for late for games around its era to go ahead and be really muddy and nasty and brown and gross. And to to add on to another point that uh, Thomas made, which I think is is something that we also need to talk about when we talk about where horror was during the PS2 and original Xbox and GameCube and Dreamcast era, and where horror is now, is that uh, and especially in the PS3 and 360 era, is that uh, a lot of the major horror franchises that we talk about that are influential that you know are the well for lack of a better word right that people continue to go back to is uh those games are japanese resident evil is japanese fatal frame is japanese silent hill is japanese and on and on and on it goes right clock tower is japanese um and there was no group of studios or publishers that were hit as hard by the transition from the ps2 to ps3 era as Japanese developers. I mean, Konami basically stopped making games because of the cost. Capcom almost went under. Square Enix famously like had enormous problems with their development pipelines and on and on it goes, right? Like if you think of a, a Japanese studio or series or, or publisher that was doing well during that period, they are the minority, which is why gaming became so much more during that era about like PC devs coming to consoles, just like Bioware or you know Bungie, who was on a Mac developer for a really long time, um, making those inroads onto the console space and then becoming very, very Western focused. And what like a prestige game was considered was because the Japanese development studios were hit so hard, and all the interesting horror work was, by and large, you know, with the exceptions like Eternal Darkness, being done in Japan. Well, you know why that is, right? No, it's a. Uh... Back in the mid to late 90s, there was this huge fan in Japan for horror movies to be... I should restructure this sentence. Back in the mid to late 90s, teenage girls in Japan loved horror movies. 
and so it's if you go back and you look at the horror movies of the 90s in japan it's why so many of them have female protagonists or the or female killers or both because the teenage girls would show up to watch them it's part of what got the original resident evil made with jill front and center because it was a horror game with a female protagonist and it's part of why resident evil to this day with a few unfortunate missteps has been a very traditionally female friendly franchise and so a lot of Japanese devs were going to would jump on that. It's part of why Fatal Frame was made in the first place. And it's part of why you see also like, uh, I guess you could probably attribute Illbleed to it too, although I don't know what you would attribute Illbleed to aside from, I don't know, imminent insanity. Stroke of genius is what Illbleed is. I guess I didn't know what audience I was in here before, before I voiced my full-throated support of Illbleed. But... Oh 2025 ill bleed episode here we go yeah just in time for the last dreamcast in the in the out there in the wild to break but uh the uh i think the japanese focus on horror in the period also led to the japanese focus on survival horror and they too kind of fed off of each other and then the whole thing got brought down by the increasing mainstreaming of the entire medium before indies kind of came along and saved it and you know even and i I guess this is not entirely true because there are Western horror games, right? Like Supermassive does a lot of stuff in that space and Dead Space, obviously. But like, it's a very different vibe. It's very different in terms of where its focus is and what it wants to be. Um, mm-hmm. So it's different in the same way that like any genre has different approaches from Western devs and Eastern devs. I think that's true to an extent, but I look at a lot of like games that are in the west or in the east right and you could see like conceivably like a western game studio making something that plays similar to devil may cry i cannot for any reason it's called phantom hellcat yeah like think of anything that would inspire a western studio to make fatal frame specifically unless fatal frame already existed you know what i mean like there's no there's no developer that you could pull from during that era that would make a game like Fatal Frame in the West. I, I just don't see it. I, w- I have my research material pulled up for this, but the, part of the reason why Fatal Frame is what it is is it's based on a nightmare the director had. Well, let's... Do, do we feel comfortable trans, transitioning to the game? The game of the... Yeah. Uh, this, this is a good segue, and then we can go into that, right? Yes. Okay. Also, I like Siren. Siren was a good piece. Siren is cool.
this week's game of the week is Fatal Frame 2 Crimson Butterfly, a game by Tecmo. There's a version for the PS2, a director's cut for Xbox, and a Wii remake. The sequel to the original Fatal Frame, it was intentionally made easier due to the difficulty and horror of the first game holding players some players back. At least that's how they saw it. It's a completely different story, but fundamentally, it's similar gameplay. It's a horror game where you take pictures of ghosts to get rid of them. Though it does have unique elements added into this game for its camera mechanic, and the camera in this game is called the Camera Obscura, which we will get into. You play as Mio most of the time, and your partner is your twin named Mayu. And you have a complicated history, but you always remain together. They explore an abandoned ghost village. It happens to all of us. Um, that has had some pretty screwed up ritual. These rituals and the ghosts of the village may threaten both Mio's relationship with her sister and their very lives. Gentlemen, what did you think of this game? I think that introduction makes it sound like an after-school special. <laughs> That's just the tone yeah. of every single intro I do. That's just how I do it. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. Um, I mean, I guess I can go first. Fatal Frame Two is my favorite horror game. Um, Respectable. I, I think it is. It, it to me, it is the scariest video game I've ever played. Um, I think it does horror really, really well, and I hadn't played it in a really long time. Um, so going back to it for this was was genuinely a pleasure, and uh, you know, I don't want to like you know I want to hear you guys talk about it, but I think the thing that stuck out for me the most was a that it is still genuinely frightening, um, b that it understands restraint in a, a a really respectable way, and c that like the aesthetic of that game completely and utterly still works. Thomas, do you want to go or? Yeah. I was initially really surprised that fatal frame was a thing at all because the first time i ever heard of it i thought it was a joke uh what if pokemon snap but scary <laughs> but the first game really drew me in and the second game i kind of circled around for a while before i finally just sat down and plowed through it in one long weekend right around its release window i think that there are certain elements of it which work against the whole but I, the, for example, um, and this is a, a friend of mine while we were playing it once pointed out that every character in Fatal Frame runs like they think they're, uh, like they're trying to get out of running the mile in gym class. <laughs> okay. I, I can see that. Yeah. And, and now it's all I can see. Also, Fatal Frame 2 is one long escort mission for long chunks of the game. And I think we have to, uh, point to that as a, occasional flaw but all in all just in terms of vibes the way that if you play it on a standard connection it looks like it's filmed through an old grainy camera uh the sound design the fact that it is willing to do things entirely just to fuck with you which to me has always been the gold standard of survival horror it's not simply uh you know this entire room it just has a creepy bit in it and it was there just to scare you and has nothing else but o overall i don't i w don't know if i would call it my favorite but it is easily in the, sh the, in the short list for the best horror game of its generation. And to a certain extent, it's a dick move that we're talking about it because it's so hard to play legally now. Yeah, I, I ended up um, buying a uh, digital copy on the PS3 store. So if you have a PS3, you can still go get a copy of Crimson Butterfly for like 10 bucks. But that's yeah. about it. I just never get rid of my original one after I found out how rare it was. Yeah, I rented it. 
back in the day, which is uh, I, one of those things that I really regret renting uh, because I wish I owned a copy of Fatal Frame 2. That yeah, was physical. Same. Yeah, saying something like, I rented that game from Blockbuster sounds like it was just from a previous geologic era, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. It really does. And I, I'm kind of surprised that my Blockbuster had it, but it, it was one of those games, you know, we talk about like those old stories. Uh, if you're old enough, you'd go into a game store and you'd see something. And I saw, I remember seeing the cover for Crimson Butterfly and being like, holy shit, I have to play this. Yeah, I saw a ad for the first one in PSM Magazine, which is probably a redundancy, but... And, uh, thought then i picked up the first one on a whim because uh it wasn't so much that brand new video games were less expensive back then as i had uh i lived in the middle of nowhere and my rent was three dollars so i had a lot of disposable income to throw at really stupid shit but that one worked out for me and then i had to play the sequel and i've been talking about it ever since uh for me i find this game like aesthetically spot on like when I I, re, I played through all of the Resident Evil games uh, a year ago, and the only one that like truly spooked me was RE Remake on the GameCube, and that's because they used the camera angles, the fixed camera angles, to such great effect. This game does that, uh, that and like doubles it. Like some of these angles they pick are so spooky; it feels constantly like you're being watched. And just when the angle's just a little bit Dutch, a little bit tilted, it does loads. And when you're playing it with your in your on your totally legit PS2 with an RTX 3080, and you have your headphones on, the sound design where the ghosts are like whispering in your ears, that like sends chills up my spine. I think my issue is, like a lot of horror games, I think it is an hour or two too long. And also, I think this game's pretty easy, and that sort of kneecaps the horror to a lot of uh, parts of it. Yeah, I actually, like I said, I pulled up some research materials from a paper I wrote about the whole series a couple of years ago. And one of the things that the director said, what is his name? Uh, Makoto Shibata said is that a lot of people told him that they hadn't finished the first game because they got too spooked mm -hmm. so the second game they made sure that it was they wanted a more interesting story and they wanted to make sure that more people could complete it and i think to a certain degree you can definitely argue that they overcompensated yeah i think difficulty in horror games is a real a real tricky line to do because if you make it too hard then you're not getting scared at the enemies you're just getting frustrated but if you make it too easy, then the enemies just kind of feel toothless. And I think for a lot of the encounters in this game, the enemies feel really toothless because it's a lot of the same encounter again. Like, early on, I was struggling because I didn't quite fig understand the camera combat. This is my first fatal frame. But the moment I understood the, uh, the zero frame uh, aspect to it to deal a lot of damage, and especially once I got the blast upgrade... Um, I was clipping through this to an extent where I was also just running past a lot of encounters because they just didn't seem worth my time. Yep. I mean, I was going to say, all right, I, I haven't even said my opinion on the game yet. I like the game. I haven't beat it, but I really like it. Um, I was going to say, number one, I think this is a normal survival horror problem. Like, if you look at the Resident Evils and if you look at Silent Hills, they're not actually hard, especially when you do that thing where you consider whether or not an enemy is actually worth uh, engaging with. If you skip the enemy, yeah, you'll be able to conserve a lot of your um, items, which is the actual big tension in most of these games. 
Um, and even in this one, they actually dialed that back because you have an infinite um, film as well to uh, to solve that problem. Anyways, the thing that stuck out with me when I played this, because this is also my first Fatal Frame, is the camera mechanic. I think when I first heard of Fatal Frame, it's not like I was like dismissive about it, but I didn't I didn't understand the appeal of the camera because for me, I really liked combat and horror. And I saw, at least when I first saw it, I, I thought the camera was not combat. But I am wrong. It is actually the best combat. And I will tell you why. I think in Resident Evil, or I just played this game recently that's like very similar. It's called Ghost at Dawn. It's an independent game or whatever. It has the fixed camera angles, but it has the gunplay. It has ghosts as well, but it has the gunplay of a Resident Evil. And what a lot of times will happen in these games is because of the, of the off-camera angle... You're really just relying on sound design, sort of aim, or the auto-aim does it for you, and you're just unloading, you're just mindlessly going, and you're just doing it, and you're just like, okay, everything's dead, and then you continue forward, or you ignore everything once you figure that out. In this game, what it does is everything everyone has said is correct, 100%. And then what happens is with these fixed cameras and with this stylized direction, these nice little moments of horror in between these things, you're, you're compelled to go into the camera, go into first person, and confront the ghost. And this game also sort of has this mechanic where the closer you are, um, the more the more payoff there is. And you also have to wait for the right moment in animation. You have to engage with the enemies. You have to literally confront them. And to me, that is the actual best way to do this sort of thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, bro, because that's the kind of the next point i was gonna make and i i agree that i think crimson butterfly is maybe not hard in a way that would make it maybe more frightening to engage with but i also don't think that resident evil has ever been particularly hard unless you're playing on like professional and usually you play that after you have a bunch of guns already um i don't think that like silent hill of what i have played of it has been particularly hard of most things you can run away from uh Fatal Frame, the thing that, I, that I've always really liked about it is that it forces you to look at the scary thing and put yourself at risk, especially if you want the zero frame, right? Like you have to let them get close to you. You have to let them generally start up an attack. And in most games, you don't want to do that, right? Like in Resident Evil, you kind of back away and shoot. Uh, in Fatal Frame, that is not what you want to do. Uh, I think the other cool thing that Crimson Butterfly especially does is it makes your positioning choices really interesting because the ghosts can go through walls. If there's stairs, they can just float up to you. Uh, you cannot put your back against a wall and wait for stuff to come at you. That's a really good way to get killed. Uh, you have to be very aware of what your environment is. And a lot of these environments, because they are small or confined in some way, not all of them, but a decent chunk of them, right? Especially if you're in like a house in the village, like, these rooms are small. There's stuff in the way that you have to navigate around. And it forces you to approach the ghost that you're fighting uh, in a very interesting way. I, the, the thing that always steps out to me when I, when I came back to it and when I've talked to people about Crimson Butterfly is I think the first encounter that really gets me is when the box woman comes out at you. And when she crawls out of that box for the first time, like she's coming out of the ring, you're like, nope, 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 what the fuck? What the fuck? And then, you know, you actually have to engage in the encounter. And because that room is so small and because the right-hand part of it is kind of blocked off by that uh, kimono, you have to maneuver in a very interesting way. 
And I think, like, at its best, that's what makes Fatal Frame interesting, and specifically Crimson Butterfly, is not that, like, you don't have to manage resources, because I think resource management in most games is pretty dull, and most of the time you can literally just out-gear it or out-save it, or, you know, in Resident Evil you just focus on headshots or whatever. Like, it's not really the thing that most people make it out to be. In Fatal Frame, to me, the interesting thing is being forced to constantly confront the thing that I don't want to look at that is frightening, and take the risk of, like, I have to let you get close to me, I have to let you try to attack me. Mm -hmm. I, I just feel that the game would have been stronger for me if it didn't have, like, the the generic enemy ghosts that you find that just sort of, like, respawn in the overworld, and if it was just these individual unique encounters. Like, the, the very first house you go into in the village, for me, that had, like, great build-up to one singular encounter. And I thought that's what the game was going to be. It's like you go into a new location, you're going to learn about, like, the specific ghost, or maybe, like, one to three ghosts that are haunting there. And when I started encountering, like, just the generic villagers running about, uh, I don't know, it's like... I think... And then I'm going to let everybody else talk because I think like I've been monopolizing a little bit. Is um, One of the things that, that works about that for me is that every time you see a ghost in Fatal Frame, especially in Crimson Butterfly, um, you know, the, the house, the first house kind of conditions you to be like, maybe this won't be so bad, right? Because some of them won't attack you. They'll just stand there. You know, some of them will appear and like the screen will go blurry and it'll make the really loud noise and things get spooky and you can hear your heartbeat and they don't do anything to you. And I think what makes, like, the smaller encounters, at least for me, interesting is because for a while, and this doesn't always last, so eventually you're like, okay, this is, a, this is an encounter. But for a while, you're sitting there thinking, is this going to attack me? What do I have to do? And, you know, do I have time? And especially if you're playing it from the perspective of, I want to take pictures of all the ghosts, right? It adds that additional bit of challenge because you have to make that decision very quickly. And... Yeah, so that's my that's my take on that. I do agree that the the tailored encounters that you run into, like the very like especially the the first house, are the best part of the game. Some light freaking out. And that ended your second marriage. How many marriages do you think I've had? <laughs> Enough. I'll accept that answer. <laughs> but the general i the, that's the general thing about the the first two fatal frames. It's worth mentioning kind of a complete story in and of themselves and then the third one is a lesser but it's an interesting capstone uh and then it goes fully into fan service hell with the fourth and fifth as far as i'm concerned but as someone who as you've played the entire franchise here i found myself really interested and invested in the story i really like the relationship in of the sisters and i love uh, do we feel comfortable spoiling things, or should we just let that we spoil? I think we should, you know, um, you know, just maybe be aware. Do, of... Maybe do something like, you know, give it a couple more minutes and then just go. We're going to do spoiler chat and put a bumper there. Or something. All, all yeah. I'm going to say lightly is, is I like the village. I like its its ritual stuff. I like that that deep sense of trauma and how that reflects into the dynamic of the sisters. And I was wondering in terms of the series and I guess specifically Fatal Frame 1 is how how much did they evolve in storytelling especially from 
the the camera angles and the cutscenes, and then the lore documents, if you will. Did, how did that evolve? The second one is a very direct ev- evolution from the first. The first one, I think, has held up better than people give it credit for. But by nature, it's a much quieter experience because you only have the one character. You just have uh, Miha? What's her name? Uh, Mio's from this one. No, they... Uh, the original Fatal Frame, her name's like uh, Mio Hanasaki, but I, the problem is she has a daughter in a later installment who has exactly her name, and I'm trying to, so... That sounds like a timeline. <laughs> well, just... Miku, I'm sorry, her name is Miku Hanasaki in the first game. Uh, she goes into a haunted house to look for her brother and finds the camera. And uh, fun, fun fact about Fatal Frame 2... Uh, the only link it has to the original game is that you find out what happened to uh, one of the bit characters who I don't think you ever meet turns out to be the grandmother of the character from the player character from the first game. It's a, huh. it's a very tenuous link, but okay. there is a link. At least shows that there's a shared universe at work. Yeah, that and the camera. The camera is a specific individual item that floats around a bit. If I remember correctly. Honestly, I kind of prefer my horror to be a little more anthology. Uh, well, then, then you'd love the third one. Yeah, Fatal Frame is, is an anthology series. And 3 especially has like very interesting callbacks to 1 and 2. And I, I obviously don't want to spoil like Fatal Frame 3. I think it's a really interesting game, even though I don't think it's quite as good as Crimson Butterfly is. Um, but I think it does the anthology thing really, really well. Yeah, the, char- the player characters in the third game are the protagonist from the first game. The uncle of the twins from Fatal Frame 2, and a completely new character who's a professional photographer. Oh, that, that, that dude's going to kill it. That dude's going to be great at this. She's having a bad day. Her fiancé just died in a car accident at the start of the game. Oof, but uh, And the whole deal is that they all go into the same haunted mansion whenever they sleep. Uh, so it kind of does the Silent Hill 4 thing where your apartment yeah. is initially a safe harbor, and then over the course of the game it slowly starts to feel like it's turning against you. And I'm off topic. We're supposed to be talking about Fatal Frame 2, aren't we? So if we want to start getting into the story uh and you know spoilers ahead i will say i was expecting the sister to be a ghost the whole time am i gonna bruce willis it (laughs) yeah i was i was expecting mayu to be a ghost because they do that that opening where you know she's having the flashback and oh she fell in a ditch um, ultimately, it turns out that just sort of messed up her leg. And you can see that in her character model when she runs. She kind of runs with a limp. I thought it was going to be, oh, she died there. And what, you're, what you've what you been talking to is just like a hallucination. Uh, and I guess I w- that sort of ruined my experience going through the story. Because I was just waiting for that shoe to drop. And it never did. It just turns out she's flesh and blood. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you. The version of the game you built in your head was better than the one you got? <laughs> no, no. I just I was just I just didn't have any investment in like saving Mayu cuz I was like, "Oh, it's, it, she's a ghost." <laughs> I was like expecting to point the camera at her and it would light up. Uh but I do like the the haunted village. I do like this ritual they have of sacrificing twins. And particularly the way they go about it, uh, my I felt my neurons expanding when I realized what the title Crimson Butterfly means. Because I had been waiting the whole game to find out. <laughs> and it's, oh, it's the red marks you leave on someone's throat when you strangle them to death. What that, that kind of Suicide Squad continue? Yeah. That said, I'm a little perplexed. Why was the Kusabi the end boss and not uh, Sai? Because I feel like Sai, the 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 previous twin who didn't 
who wasn't killed by her sister and sort of went on a ghost-filled rampage through the village causing all this, it feels like she kind of vanished uh, as something you saw through the narrative. Correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't there an additional boss fight on another hard mode? Oh, is there? I believe so. I don't know if it's Sai or not. I'm pretty sure there is an extra boss fight. That leads to the additional ending. There's another ending. Oh, okay. There's at least one ending that's exclusive to the Xbox version on 2, isn't there? There is a director's cut. I know that much. Because that's what I'm playing. And I know the Wii remake added, like, two more endings. Yeah, the problem is the Wii remake never was released in the U.S., which annoyed me because I was looking for it for a real long time, and then I found out that was why I couldn't find it. You could, you can't play as uh, Miyu cosplaying as Mario, unfortunately. No, you're just stuck with the Kasumi Ayane outfits, which are kind of skeevy on them. What, girls who I think are supposed to be 14? I think they're like 13, if I'm remembering the lore documents, because it has to be twins of a very specific age for the ritual to have, have peak potency. That makes sense. Like the sister, I understand at points it could be frustrating, um, but she also kind of helps you a bit in certain times where she's like, hey, like if there's a point of interest, I think some of the times where I've been frustrated in the game is uh, points of interest or like, you know what I mean? Just like finding things and she's helpful with that. So I don't mind. Yeah. I also think that there's, there's a bunch of really cool moments that are completely optional where you know, you will do something or you'll go past a place or you'll interact with something. And uh, Mayu will be like, hey, you should come over here and look at this, right? Yeah. So it's, it, I, th- I think, uh, like, you know, to Thomas's earlier point before we got into, like, story spoilers, I think that, you know, it is an escort mission for a lot of its runtime and we do have to talk about that that always isn't a good thing. But I also think that Crimson Butterfly does a really good job of, like, especially in that first house, right? You get used to having her there and then she runs away and you're by yourself. And there's this moment of like, oh, things are way worse and they were already bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, yeah. the despair really does hit when you're alone, which sort of really makes the dynamic special. It works. Yeah. Not not if you're me, because I assumed she was never there to begin with. All right, Murph, we get it. We get it. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that the there is an undervalued skill when it comes to being a horror fan, and that's not automatically trying to outthink the work. Uh, I did, I never had an issue with escorting the sister. I uh, that's how you get some of the most damaging shots is you shoot them when they're trying to kill her. Yeah. Use her as bait. How dare you? That, that, I mean, that <coughs> is true. Um, yeah. Like, and this goes to like the game thematically, right? About like it's a story about twins. It's a story about like cycles of trauma and things that happen. And uh, to, like, you know, people who are very close to one another. And I think that, like, making that a gameplay thing where, you know, the ghosts can attack her and can hurt her. And you want her to be okay. And she points stuff out to you. And when she's gone, you're like, wait, oh, shit, like, I'm completely by myself, right? I think, like, establishing this idea very early on that, like, you're not alone. And then being alone, you know, that, that, that's pretty effective. And then having the ending be, you have to willfully kill the person you've been trying to protect and rescue this entire time. Uh, that was sort of... Uh, I, I do like the emotionality of that scene, especially since it's something you saw repeated throughout the game of like the, uh, the surveyor who came to the village uh, with his girlfriend. He ends up killing her. 
the doll maker kills his daughter again uh for a, like symbolically and then for reals um and then you have you uh you killing your sister but it's like sort of this act of I don't really want to say love but it's it's not like a brutal like dark ending it's fulfilling their promise of always being together by their souls becoming one and also you free the village by finally fulfilling the ritual um and then that song kicks in which is kind of a jam but the lyrics are a little <laughs> a chew on the nose it is what it is. oh you know i i do think that it's worth noting like for people who you know are still here and maybe have only played crimson butterfly once or played it a long time ago or haven't played it at all um that there are three endings yeah in that game and the director's cut adds a fourth uh now fatal frame three chooses an ending for you there is a canon ending in crimson butterfly but i do think it's interesting that it allows you to make a choice, especially in the Xbox version, which has like what is for, you know, I guess all intents and purposes, like a happier ending. The best case, theoretically. Um, yeah. I, I think that quote unquote canon ending or whatever still feels appropriate. You know what I mean? Like, I think I, I'm looking at spoiler alert. I looked at the endings on YouTube. Um, I think there are all satisfactory, like sort of, bows that tie everything up and for me the canon ending feels like if i watched it as a movie that would be the movie's ending you know what i mean i feel like it pays off all the story beats even though the some of the other story beats are set up like the blindness um in one of the endings that is also set up earlier in the game um mm -hmm. i don't know I, I i like the canon but it but i am also a person that's never a fan of being married to the canon like silent hill 2 i don't i keep talking about it doesn't have a canon ending though there's there's endings that they heavily lean towards like this is probably what it is um it yeah. is nice that players are able to have this sort of navigation through um the gameplay to sort of reach their own conclusion one of the things that sprung out at me at the time that i've reminded myself of while you were talking about the thematic resonance was around the time this came out i was watching a lot of j horror through fan subs and one of the things that really jumped out at me, especially in ghost stories from Japan, is that Western horror, to a certain extent, tends to be about someone transgressing and being punished for it. They do something stupid, like not listen to the old man at the gas station about the killer loose in the woods, and then something happens to them, and on some level, it's their fault. It's about your sins coming back to haunt you in one way or another. In a lot of japanese horror particularly fatal frame 2 it's just about being in the wrong place at the wrong time it's about being the unluckiest person to ever exist at that particular point mm -hmm. yeah miyu and mayu have no genetic relationship to the village they are just a pair of twins who happen to wander in at the wrong time to a village that unfortunately happens to have a lot of twin related baggage yeah, and that it, was that was a big part of the impact that it had for me coming from somebody. I grew up mostly watching Western horror with that sin and punishment cycle, to Fatal Frame Two and other works like Juan or Pulse, where, hey man, sometimes the world just decides to fuck you up. Mm-hmm, and that's something more in Japanese folklore. Uh, 
ghosts and spirits take on more of a eldritch horror. They're more they're more unknowable in their motives and their actions. It's much more Lovecraftian. Um, the idea of like ghosts being tortured spirits with unfinished business. That's a very Western idea. And you can definitely see that influence uh, in this, where it's just like a lot of the ghosts you encounter are people that just really died horrifically and they're just sort of trapped above the doorway to hell and that's why they're still here tortured forever until you're able to finish the ritual. Actually, that's the that's kind of the, the funny part is uh, it's not because somebody didn't do their job right. Uh-huh. They did not fulfill their chosen place in society and oh. decided to focus on their individual happiness over what they were meant and, you know, raised to do. Now everybody's all fucked up. Yes, yes. That is that is one of the odder aspects to the story is it's like, well, you didn't do the the ritual where you kill your sister. Uh now now everyone must suffer. And it's a it is a bit of a weird moral when you get to the ending that's like, no, the ritual is good, actually. Ugh. Um, I think I maybe this is just me going because going off. I'm not fully in deep in this analysis, but I think there's a lot of Buddhist and Shinto influences in this, and a lot of it has to do with suffering, especially when it comes when you get closer and closer to the climax and like the hell part. It's like the more suffering, the better. But once you reach that ending, the twins aren't suffering; they're sort of content with what happens to them as long as they are together. So I think there's a sort of liberation there or something. I don't know. Yeah, no, I I think that's supported in the text. Um, The ending, the overall ending area is kind of where I got a little bit frustrated with the game because that's when it's like, okay, backtrack to these areas you've already been to where all the boss ghosts have, well, not all of them, but a lot of the like unique encounter ghosts have respawned. And look for these, like, specific medallions. Um, I do... I do kind of have an issue with this game's environments all being kind of samey to me. And, you know, it's not like... It's it's a decrepit Japanese village. So all the rooms are going to look like rooms in decrepit Japanese villages. But I don't feel like there's that many, like, landmarks. Um, though the house with the broken neck woman... I was getting lost in because all the hallways looked the same to me and I wasn't registering doors as doors. I was using the map button the way telegrams use the word stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you use the map button a lot in Crimson Butterfly. Yeah. Um, it, it just as long as I'm listing other grievances, I really didn't like the room or the, the level with the, the little ghost girl that you have to fight four times. <laughs> um. As creepy as ghost children can be, that was the part where I was just, like, getting frustrated uh, with with the sequence. Especially there, like, the sound design's really oppressive with her just constantly whispering, why do you kill? Uh, I think it was it would have been better served as a singular encounter rather than something that's, like, repeated. I'm, I'm hearing a lot of grievances, but on the whole, what did you think of it, like, as a place in video game horror? Oh, I think it's I think it's a good game. I think it's, like, maybe a, a four out of five, depending on... Well, yeah, just, just to put in perspective, you know, was 
This is, a, this is a show where we talk about games, and it, bad stuff is part of that. You can't have the, the light without the good. I, I agree. No, no, no. I, I, understand, I understand frustrations, and I think it's also large part of the genre, large part of how the game is designed. And it's sort of like you take the bad, and I, I'm kind of okay with it, at least, you know, what I've experienced of it. It's never It never feels monotonous. I understand it possibly going on too long or some missteps but usually i am taking the steps with them and it goes back to the willful suspension of disbelief but it goes into something beyond just narrative where it's like i am willing to not overlook but go along with the ride i guess is the best way to say it mm-hmm. yeah i i think crimson butterfly also does a really good job of um there, there's a saying in writing that good stories tell you what they're about basically at the beginning right and then you get payoff um there's a there's a very common example of like a good man is hard to find by flannery o'connor uh if you know that story you know the grandmother didn't want to go to florida because she's worried about the misfit who ends up killing that entire family um it tells you what the story's about right at the beginning and i think crimson butterfly does a really good job of like establishing maybe not like an idea in your head about this is what this story is going to be about. Maybe not like a concrete thing, but like a feeling of like, Oh, right. With all those references to like this person killed this other person that's close to them. Like everything kind of comes in twos the way that Crimson Butterfly operates. Like it immerses you in that, like that kind of feeling. So when it makes those movements in the story, I think your brain is kind of like conditioned to accept it. And I also think that the thing that the game does really well is it's extremely confident hmm yeah it's extremely confident um like on a level that i don't think i've seen in a game especially in a modern game in a really long time um crimson butterfly knows what it is it knows exactly what it wants to be and it just does it you know it's confident in its use of the camera it's confident in its art design it's confident in the way that its spaces exist and force you into encounters it's confident in the way the camera works um you know does it make like a couple of concessions to the idea of like yeah you know in fatal frame one you can get stuck like you can run out of film and you can't progress that sucks so it makes some concessions to that but i think like the level of confidence that it has especially for me like there are things about crimson butterfly that i'm not over the moon for but what works for me is that level of confidence and that feeling that being able to hit the highs like if you play it there are things about it that you will remember for a very long time because of that confidence and that ability to like build upon itself until it gets to where it wants to go. Like it feels like a game with a direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Every note you pick up is in service of the overall theme and story. It's not like something like, I don't know, a resident evil game where you can find notes that are just kind of like world building, you know, like, here's a brief history of this specific area you're in. And maybe we'll have, like, a... Yeah, it maybe we'll have, like, a clue to a puzzle or something. But here it's, like, every note you find is kind of in sequence with other notes. Like, if you find a Crimson Diary, it is from this specific character whose narrative you're kind of following throughout the game. And there are even optional... Uh, sort of side things you can do, like with the uh, the lost couple, you can like do a sequence of events to get their 
get like the wedding ring the guy was going to propose with and that doesn't really do anything for you but it's a payoff to their narrative if you find all their notes and sort of follow through on their story yeah it's a game that like i think really rewards you for getting you know finding that stuff and paying attention and making those little inference it doesn't like throw it in your face right Mm -hmm. it's not like oh you've been reading about this character or that's this thing but like if you pay attention it really rewards you for doing that and i think that that's yeah and you know i ragged on this just to that end i ragged on the game for being easy but that's almost because the game really rewards you with like intuing where items would be just based on the camera angle uh it's very good at leading your line of sight to a desk in the corner and that desk doesn't have like a little glowy interact with me symbol on it but i just kind of said to myself that looks like something where an item would be. And you interact with it, you get a healing item. That's cool. Yeah. Are we, are we really talking about how good the focus is in the camera game? <laughs> I, there are games that are built on their cameras that don't do cameras really well. Yeah. Well, no, I'm, I, I'm being facetious. Yeah. But I think that you, you're really making a strong point here in that Fatal Frame, especially the first two Fatal Frames, are very deliberately limited to a single location in a way that most games in this kind of ballpark aren't willing to be. They will eventually change locations for worry that you will, as you said, start to feel like everything looks the same. But Fatal Frame is in the same house the entire time and never stops being in that house. Fatal Frame 2 is always in the village and will always continue to be in that village. And you can sometimes see sequences in a particular game which have that level of focus on what they want to do and where the story they are telling. The first thing that comes to mind is uh, that bit in the first Last of Us where uh, you're in that uh, sewer maintenance tunnel and you're, con- you're following the story of that guy named Ike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's for, for that 45 minutes to an hour, the entire game is about trying to figure out what happened to this guy. And his little camp of survivors. But Fatal Frame has the singularity of purpose in which it will just say, this is the story we're telling. We're not going to worry too much about whether it's accessible to you or not. You know, we're, we This is what we've got. We are going to hand it to you. You can do what you want with it. We are not going to bust our balls trying to make sure this is all things to all people. Which and is a... It's not a game where I can picture there being uh, pre-order bonus costumes. I mean, that's very ironic. Well, I mean... <laughs> oh, it did I... This is very much a game from the Your Reward is Clothes era. There are a lot of optional costumes, including, like I mentioned earlier, a couple which are shout-outs to other Tecmo franchises. Yeah. Okay. In, the Wii, in the Wii version, you can unlock Mario and Luigi costumes for Mio and Mayo. Oh, okay. I I had no idea. I rescind my statement. I was thinking I was thinking of Alan Wake 2 and how it's taunting me with the digital deluxe edition. And, oh, you get... You get Alan Wake's Hawaiian shirt if you pre-order or whatever. You made your original point. You know, it it feels it focused in a it feels focused in a way that doesn't really happen anymore. Or at least I think developers are afraid to do sometimes. Not for mainline horror games. Yeah. Uh, not for, for anything. Ma- I think. Yeah, and for that matter, being a mainline horror game because uh, this is this is definitely something that came out towards the end of the first-gen survival horror. After this point, RE4 comes out, and it does refocus the entire thing much further towards action. 
And one of the things about, I have described Fatal Frame in articles before as being a niche in a niche in a niche. It's a survival horror game that's comparatively nonviolent and has deliberately no real points of cultural contact for an audience outside Japan. Resident Evil at it, you know, always offers that built-in catharsis of, you know what, I am going to blow you the fuck in half. Mm-hmm. And even when you're at your most powerful in Fatal Frame 2, the it, the oppressive atmosphere of the village and the sound design never makes you feel like you are at that point where you are just dominating everything around you. A lot of uh, times in survival horror, there will be a trajectory. What The reason for that in Resident Evil, obviously with all the weapons and stuff, but it, it, there's a familiarity to it. Once you become familiar with the systems, you become unafraid. And again, at least in Fatal Frame, I, I guess Murph is a good example of being unafraid, but it still works. Again, it, this goes back to the, there's a giant ghost in front of you about to attack you. You have to hit the thing at the right moment. No matter what, you have to be engaged. Even when you're empowered, you're still not very empowered. Yeah, yeah uh, Silent Hill gets around that by virtue of its oppress again its oppressive design. Silent Hill Two would still be a scary game, particularly in its more surreal bits, if you were wearing the uh, a suit of Iron Man armor. Yeah, you just I know that I can go down there and anything that jumps out at me, I am going to beat the fuck out of it for free at the character select screen. But I don't want to go down there. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, with with Fatal Frame, even if I know I can one shot kill this thing in front of me, like Will was saying earlier, um, I have to let it get to the point where it's about to take a bite out of my collarbone. Mm-hmm. I have to stick this camera up its nostril in order to be the most effective. You gotta be the crocodile um, hunter. Open that crocodile <laughs> right up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and uh, I do think that one of the things that Fatal Frame Two does is that uh, every ghost is worth points towards your upgrade path Mm -hmm. so the more that you skip the more that you're running the risk of being underpowered for a later fight that you can't skip yeah it's sort of Mm -hmm. fatal frames answer to the ammo conservation issue in resident evil where i don't think very many individual encounters in resident evil are something that i would point out as being particularly scary there are definitely a couple of jumps that i could point to especially like uh that bit in the giant elevator shaft in the original Resident Evil 2 where you look into a security monitor and Mr. X is just right there all of a sudden. Um, that's a pretty that's a jump scare. But in general, the the pressure in Resident Evil, which is where a lot of its horror comes from, is every time you use a resource, you don't know if that resource is something you're going to be able to conveniently replace. Mm-hmm. Even if you feel like you're in a good position, there is the imminent danger that you are very much not. Yeah. Which And that push-pull is something that is very difficult to effectively replicate, which is why a lot of the slavish imitators of Resident Evil have fallen flat. They'll either give you too much ammunition or not enough, and either way, some of that pressure is gone. You either know that you're not prepared or you're over-prepared. Uh, Alan Wake 2 is actually very good at making you feel that same sense of pressure, particularly with uh, flashlight batteries. Mm-hmm. Uh because Remedy is a good studio that takes the right lessons from things. Do I have to edit? Do I have to edit that out? Or are we good? No, there's. The, hey, Alan Wake Two has a flashlight mechanic. Every there you go. Frogan, you're dropping this on Halloween. Embargo for Alan Wake is tomorrow. <laughs> but yeah. with yeah, with Fatal Frame, the it's a question of uh, can I afford to skip this fight because I it might leave me unprepared for something later. With Fatal Frame Two in particular, with Fatal Frame, the pressure was. 
every time I take a picture, have I gotten the absolute most I can out of this particular exposure? Mm-hmm. Because there is there is only a little bit of film in the entirety of the mansion. And once it's gone, it's gone. And especially if you're coming into a Fatal Frame game directly from Resident Evil or Silent Hill, where both of them are just like, handgun. you pay seven handgun bullets to get past this zombie. Yeah. You are just going to hose them into the center of mass as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. With Fatal Frame, it's, if you do that, you fuck yourself over really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. And in Crimson Butterfly, even with the, and the tweak difficulty, uh, there's still that thing where this fight will last long enough for me to eventually screw up if I use the default film. And health is a lot scarcer than film. And the other thing too, right, is like, you know, to Thomas's point, um, you want really good scores on your pictures. And to do that, you know, to get those, because you want those upgrades, right? Um, because you, again, you don't know when you're going to run into something, you know, harder or that maybe requires zero frames, uh, you know, or requires you to execute a certain way. And I think one of the interesting things about it is because it ties your ability to be good at the thing to your ability to take the pictures and like literally, you know, get close and put yourself in danger. Like there's always this sense of kind of dread, kind of risk for every time you take a photo because you want that good exposure. You want those points, but you're also putting yourself in harm's way to potentially get those points. The interesting thing to me, and I I think the thing that Crimson Butterfly does, the thing that makes it scary to me, um, Resident Evil to me has never been scary. Like even, you know, Resident Evil 1, Resident Evil 2, like they're not scary games to me because I'm not afraid I have a gun. Um, You know, I can just walk back and shoot you. Crimson Butterfly terrifies me because i have no choice but to engage with the thing and put myself at risk and no matter how many times i do it i'm not safe i don't get a rocket launcher that immediately solves my problems i don't get a magnum where i can just be like you know what i don't fucking feel like dealing with you die you get really powerful film later on but you're always at risk you're never safe and i think that's one of the things that makes Fatal Frame, and especially Crimson Butterfly, and especially the first one, so scary. And so tense. What do later, like, what does the latest Fatal Frame look like? Like, in terms of, like, quality? A gravure ad. What, did you just, like, say a, a, a Slavic curse on me? What? No, I probably mispronounced it. Uh, the the fourth and fifth Fatal Frame games are really fan service oriented. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Um, they're much fan more service in terms of Girls in or... skimpy outfits, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. I mean, there's a thing in Blackwater where uh, a big mechanic overall is uh, getting realistically wet. Ah, okay. So they yeah. left taste by the door at some point. I think they were just trying to find an audience for it. Um, one of the things that I... I mentioned this to Will when we were talking about it in the another Discord a little while ago, but... One of the things which is weird about Fatal Frame is if you dig into the numbers, up until right before the re-release of uh, Maiden of Blackwater a couple of years ago, the entire, all five games in the core series had sold a grand total of 1.4 million units between them. For as much as everybody, as I have never met a gaming horror fan who had played Fatal Frame and didn't like it. But... In terms of sales, that has never been reflected. It was an extraordinarily unpopular series up until the present day. And so with after the third one, which kind of wraps up the story of the first three games, 
Tecmo decided to, if they were going to do something with this brand that they had, which was critically, if not commercially successful, what if we just made it about teenage girls in peril? And there are, the fourth one is at least a Suda 51 joint, so it's at least usefully weird. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's not, I mean, the fourth one also didn't come out in America until, I don't know if it's still, I want to say that I heard they were going to port it relatively recently, and they, I don't know if they have yet. They ported it this year. Thank you. Um, but it was a Wii exclusive to Japan for a solid decade and a half. And the fifth one, which was available on Wii U for a while here, uh, until its re-release in 2020? Yeah. Um, is a just it's about teenage girls in elaborate dresses doing crazy shit and it's got one of the weirdest plot twists in maybe survival horror history near the end that's a bold statement considering how off the wall some survival horror games get okay who gives let me tell you go play made in the black water and come back and talk to me after <laughs> okay 20 2026 halloween episode made in the black water yeah. <laughs> Keep scheduling these. Yeah, oh these. The twist does depend to some extent on you having some familiarity with the original Fatal Frame. Okay, but um, I don't know. Do you want a spoiler? I no. Let me let me live in blissful ignorance until the moment of. Yeah, if we were in the same room together, Will and I would be sharing these like loaded looks. Like, yeah, we sh should we tell? Should yeah, we yeah. Because. <laughs> uh, that that is just a fucking crazy ending to anything. Like it is a, I think it would be fair to say that is a Kojima level of fucked up twist. Yeah, it's it, it's it is uh, it would not be out of place in a in a much more horror y Metal Gear Solid. You mean Metal Gear Survive? We don't oh. talk about that one. <laughs> I was going to make a joke earlier that clearly uh, Crimson Butterfly will find a new audience when it's remade by Bluebird Team, but. <laughs> Bro, it's bad enough that they get to touch Silent Hill too. It is bad enough that they, if they if they one of the great things that I'm as terrible as it is is that Bloober Team is Crimson Butterfly. Unfortunately for me, who you know, it's my favorite horror game, will never be popular enough that Bloober Team gets to ruin it. Thank God. That being said, Brogan, if you just manifested that, I'm coming to your house and I'm stuffing you into your mailbox. I'll take that punishment. You know, like, this goes back to the horror thing. I deserve it karmically if it happens. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Okay. But so getting back to so Fatal Frame has traditionally been a very poor seller for Tecmo. So they went hard into fan service starting with the fourth and the fifth. Um, but one of the other reasons why it's never been particularly, and I mentioned this earlier, that the director has said that a lot of fans have come up to him and said, yeah, we stopped playing it because it was too creepy. And then we returned it, which harmed the game's overall sales. It's not, to a certain extent, it's a wonder there are five games in this series. Any, I don't know if the director of Fatal Frame has pictures of the president of Tecmo performing a donkey show or what, but he managed to make five of these, and the sales doesn't, do not represent that he should have been able to make one and another reason why it's kind of unpopular is the game is the games are legitimately haunted i can put a link in the chat a bunch of links to the chat in you but um so the director based it upon this uh creepy childhood story he has about this antique camera he got gifted in a haunted house he never lived near and uh, people who have worked on the games over the years have there are archives of these online that the moment they started coming aboard the fatal frame project weird shit starts happening to them. Like, there's one that I remember where a guy who had just moved into a brand new apartment complex 
found things kept falling off of his shelves completely unprompted. Uh, just a lot of like, obviously nothing like I saw an actual ghost and now I'm on a reality show levels of verifiable, just people go on fatal frame and cre and start reporting creepy shit happening in their personal lives, including Shibata, the director. So to a certain extent, it has a reputation along them people, in, you know, Japanese developers as uh, go work on t go work on fatal frame and get a free ghost for your trouble. I don't believe in ghosts, but I think that says so much to the investment of both the, the developers and the fans, because what happens is you look for the ghost, you see them, mm -hmm. and you see the weird things that happen, and you think Fatal Frame, you think ghosts. And I think that says a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I can, I'll, I'll post the links to the uh, group chat you started this call, but there are a lot of these. And uh, I, I just I just think it's kind of funny that uh, as much as Fatal Frame deserves its reputation as a genuinely good horror game, it's never been commercially successful. Some people say it's because it's too scary for them to finish and because the developers all go into total freak mode <laughs> immediately afterward. Like, uh, you know, the process of making these apparently sort of psychologically, not like I worked on... Uh, Mortal Kombat 11, and now I have PTSD levels of mm -hmm. freaked out. But it turns out that if you work on a really creepy ghost story for a couple of years, you start living in a really creepy ghost story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's the plot of Alan Wake. You know, sort of. <laughs> kind of, yeah. It's more along the lines of I couldn't write, and then I was in a ghost story. <laughs> um, but, you know, I guess the upside of it is is that, like... It, the Alan Wake light novel is, um, I watched the entire Twin Peaks series in three days, and now I'm stuck in a small Washington town. <laughs> yeah yeah that's true yeah i have a buddy where a guaranteed laugh i can get from him is making whatever we're talking about into a light novel title so i got a lot of those locked and loaded in. i got reincarnated into my twin peaks fan fiction that's a good one write that down <laughs> my is, that, is that what's happening <laughs> <laughs> this feels like a wrap-up yeah I, I think maybe we're done <laughs> I think when we start busting out the Alan Wake light knot of old <laughs> workshop. If there's ever a side, let's start plugs and promos. Well, okay, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Waiting. Wait, everybody okay. shut up. I'm stopped. My twin I have been sister, frozen. My twin sister left me, left me into a cursed village and now I have to strangle her? Question mark exclamation point. <laughs> Okay. okay. No, that's good. That's good. I'm not mad. I'm not mad at that one. Will, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on. Well, thank. First of all, thank you guys for having me back. This is great fun. Um, like I said, uh, Crimson Butterfly is my favorite horror game, so it's always great to talk about it with people, as people, who, especially people who are playing it for the first time. Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Burger. That's Burger with an O, not a U. Uh, you can also find me on Blue Sky at Edgar Allan Bro, and you can find me on IGN where I'm doing a bunch of different things, a bunch of tech and stuff. I'm also working on a review that I can't uh, name at the moment, but something pretty cool. So uh, you can find me there. Thomas, where... Remember, whenever somebody says they're working on something really cool that they can't tell you about, it's always Hello Kitty Island Adventure. Is that is that the insider secret? He's, he's got me. He's got now me. you're enticing. Did you just, like, break the magician's code? Like, what? <laughs> Thomas... Uh you ask me goofball. Ask me if I give a fuck. I went rogue, boy. <laughs> I've lost control of this podcast. Yeah, oh, yeah. no. Control is the game before Alan Wake 2. <laughs> <laughs>
You never had control of this podcast. I never did. I never because did. Because Merc has been a ghost this entire time. And now you have to strangle him to close the portal to hell. I, I will gladly do that one. Uh, <laughs> I, catch me if you can, bitch. I'm greased up. Thomas, no, I also can... have, I also would have accepted come at me, scrub lord, I'm Rick. Damn it. I am, okay. Thomas, where can we find you? I'm All going right, to whisper um, it now. At Blue Sky, I am uh, Stolisomancer. Uh, S-T-O-L-I-S- O-M-A-N-C-E-R. I had an encyclopedia of occultism next to me when I picked my handle, and now I'm stuck with it. Uh, you can find my coverage most frequently shows up at GeekWire, where I am covering the Pacific Northwest game dev community, which also includes Wizards of the Coast. I've been doing a lot of D&D stuff lately. And I will be covering the International in Seattle this coming weekend. Uh, I am also Stilisomancer on Blue Sky and Twitter. And... Uh, uh, you can also find my writing at, uh, most commonly, The Escapist these days, and uh, every once in a while at Bloody Disgusting, and I have also recently begun contributing to Hard Drive. This week's new piece about Spider-Man 2 is live on the site for you to read right now. It's about how none of the cops want to hang out with him anymore. <laughs> or rather, how he doesn't want to hang out with any of the cops anymore. I've read that one. It's pretty good. Murph. Game, you're oh, fucking right it is. Murph, what is our next game? Our next game, as decided by committee, we're gonna be we're gonna be playing as that pantsless criminal Donald uh, Abernathy Duck. No, it's Fulton Roy. Damn it! And we're gonna be playing the SNES classic Quackshot with a very special friend. Oh yeah! Let's not let's not say who the friend is. But thank you so much, Thomas and Will. You guys were great. I love this episode. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Play Fatal Frame. Uh, Intellectual piracy. Play Fatal Frame. (laughs) I'll keep that. That stays in. I mean, it's the only real way you're going to do it. Do you have a working PS3? 